Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vishwant and Partha. Just when we thought the college football season was uh, coming to a close, we had a very uh, exciting week this this past week, and we had to bring back our resident college football analyst, Zach Smith, to talk about it again. Let's get right into this, man. I, this was by accident. I didn't mean to wear uh, an orange bandana to represent the Tennessee Vols <laughs> in any fashion, but... I, I, I thought you were politicking for the job. Oh. Your name in the hat. Would you recommend me, Zach? You think I could? You think I could coach a little bit? I'm gonna be honest. I think the pool is gonna be really thin. No one wants to walk into that train wreck. So, I mean, your name's as qualified as anyone else. <laughs> Can I say it? At this point, they're looking for volunteers. Right. Ah, that was a good one. Oh, good. I see you, Partha. But <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about it, Zach. What exactly is going on here? You know, we always talk about the underbelly of college football. We know these things happen. It's just all about whether you get caught or not it seems um so so talk to us about what happened to tennessee i mean there's all kinds of details coming out now i mean it really just boils down to they were just doing shady stuff in recruiting i mean the sec style of recruiting i think they were doing it very sloppily and very i don't know unprofessionally if you can call cheating professional um they and Pruitt got fired for, you know, with cause, meaning he gets no buyout, nothing. He's fired. Kind of how I got fired. She's like, all right, you're fired. I don't know what you're going to do next month. Sorry. See you later. And it's like, uh, that's rarely happens to head coaches and it, it needs to be a pretty decent scandal. And I've never, I don't know that I've recalled ever a uh, president coming out and actually like saying the words, a tier one or tier two violation. Like that's a serious wow. violation. Wow. And he's basically fully admitting that was going on. And now details are coming out that they were giving McDonald's bags with cash in it to recruits and things like that. And it's just, I don't know, it's shocking to me because I know the ways that some of these schools are able to do things like that. And it's never as sloppy as like, hey, do you want a Big Mac? Here's a grand. Like, that's just the most outrageous thing I've ever heard. So did he get fired for breaking the rules or did he get fired for breaking them in a sloppy way? Uh, well, I mean, I, once it's kind of comes to light it's you're gonna get fired you know what i mean yeah. whether it was well covered up or not once they did they did an internal review they found all this stuff out and at that point it's done it doesn't matter how well you did it um they 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 found it that's the problem right if they can't find it you'll be fine Got yeah it. and how prevalent is this zach like you know what i don't think it's super prevalent i mean in the sec it happens um, a lot of times it gets it, it comes to light, like what happened with Miami with the hookers and the, the yachts and what happened with Ole Miss. And I mean, it's it's not usually hard to see. Right. All of a sudden, yeah. Ole Miss signs the number one player at four different positions in the number one class in the country. And they were terrible. It's like, eh, wait a minute now. How and, they're that in, and they're in Mississippi. <laughs> right. Like it, so it's it, it's more subtle. And, and I've, I've talked about it on it was a while ago on one of my on my podcast, an episode of kind of the West Coast and the things I knew about what Adidas was doing specifically yeah. with branding and selecting athletes and, and driving them to Adidas schools. So it's it's usually there's more levels to it, more layers. It's not like a coach hands a kid a, a wad of cash. I mean, that's some like 1970s stuff right there. I, I, that, that usually is not how it happens. It usually happens. I've seen boosters donate to, to local churches, which then help families and things like that, where 
you can't really tie it to the coach or you can't tie it to the program or figure it out because it's with a church. And there's ways that people do things kind of shady that aren't as, I don't know, I don't know what else to call it, but just flat dumb. Like hand a kid a bag with cash in it. Are you stupid? And and, And how much of this we, you know, college football knows, you know, I'm probably not anybody who's recently become a fan. But historically, we know how strong of a program Tennessee has been in the landscape of college football. That stadium is amazing. The football town is amazing. They made the mistake, it seemed, of of pushing Phil Fulmer out the door. Um, But they haven't been able to recover. They've had several coaches since then. How much of this do you think was just the pressure to try to restore this program so quickly? Because it doesn't seem like guys are given much kind of leeway to build it up. It's like, we're Tennessee. We expect you to be what we were in the mid nineties immediately. How much of that do you think has to do with, with what went on here? Well, you know, you, you, you look at when Phil Fulmer got fired. It was, you know, mid 2000, I think 2008, maybe two. Yeah. I think 2008. And, he gets fired and the landscape of college football has changed so much in those 13 years. Not only that, but they went down a slippery slope. I mean, they hired Derek Dooley, Lane Kiffin, Butch Jones, a bunch of, and, and I think Lane Kiffin's a decent head coach now, but he was a young, immature guy back then. He, he learned a lot from being fired twice from really Nick, Nick Saban's tutelage. I mean, he's grown a lot. So you can't just look at Lane Kiffin today and just assume he was the head coach at Tennessee. He wasn't, it was a different yeah. guy. So it was a slippery slope. And, and not only that, not only was a slippery slope going from from Phil Fulmer to Derek Dooley to you know the all those coaches in between, um, but also the landscape changed a lot. It's a yeah. lot harder to recruit in Knoxville, Tennessee than it used to be. Right? It yeah. used to be you could recruit Tennessee kids, maybe an Ohio kid, maybe sneak down and get a Georgia kid every now and then and compete on a national level. You can't do that anymore. And yeah. Knoxville's just not a, a a destination city like you know Columbus is or. In, Mm-hmm. And, they're, and, and they're not surrounded with the talent that Alabama is or Georgia is or Clemson is, right? So yeah. I, I think it it was a slippery slope. They made some horrible hires. They hired a, a bunch of like uh, flashy coaches that weren't real, real dudes. Yeah. And I think Jeremy Pruitt was one of those real football coaches. He just kind of knew what he had to do to get the talent level up. And, you know, who knows how much he knew about it or how much he's implicated in it. But as a CEO, you're the guy that takes the fall. And so they, I guess they decided that they're going to have to buy some players. <laughs> <laughs> so who, who reasonably could be a replacement here? I mean, it seems like they're probably going to get some serious sanctions um, as a result of this. Who would want to take this job? And, and is it still an attractive job despite that? Well, I know, I know the two leading candidates that people are talking about right now is Hugh Freeze at Liberty and Jamie Chadwell at Coastal Carolina, which is the most hilarious thing in the world because the AD comes out and says, this is not acceptable at Tennessee. If you know if you can't do it the right way, then we, then we don't want you to do it at all. And he has this strong statement about like morals and doing things the right way. <laughs> and then the top two candidates are two guys that had major NCAA violation issues in the last like five to six years. You're like, wait a minute. You fired a cheater and you're going to hire a cheater. Um, so I, those are the two hot names. I can't imagine Tennessee does that. And honestly, I can't imagine that either of those two guys would want to jump into this lion's den that is going to be Tennessee football for the next five years. I think the the real play here for Tennessee is to get a, a almost the, what, what Penn State did, right? Hired Bill O'Brien, an NFL guy, to, to navigate the waters. And conveniently, Bill O'Brien's also available right now. So I think yeah. Bill O'Brien's a good name. I've heard Jeff Fisher, the coach of the Titans back in the day, is yeah. interested in it. Those are two, you know, CEO like guys that can 
bring some morals and, and some structure to the program and try to navigate what's going to be a shit show for about five years. Do NFL coaches, when they come into college, what what do they bring that's different than some of the college guys in a situation like this? Uh, corporate structure, I think. Uh, it's just the, the NFL is such a corporation. It's such a business. You know, they have the, the, the model of CEOs, vice presidents, you know, that they call coordinators and all those mm -hmm. things that um, I, I think they just bring a, a, a professional atmosphere and a business model, which, you know, you've seen both of them work. Nick Saban employs that every year. Urban Meyer employed a very different version of a program that that really transformed towards the end of his career into more of a business model with still family atmosphere stuff in it. But the one thing they don't bring is recruiting prowess uh, or recruiting experience. They have the prowess, the name, you know, every kid wants to play for Herm Edwards. They saw him on yeah. TV in, in a Super Bowl, and, you know, they, they see Lovey Smith at Illinois and they're like, that dude used to coach the bears. Like, holy crap. Like they, they see that and it's attractive, but those coaches don't know what the recruiting process is like. So they have to hire a staff that can, fill in those gaps. It's like anything else though, right? You have a weakness. What is it for an NFL coach? Recruiting. So what do you have to do? Hire a bunch of people that are really good at that. And if they do, yeah. they can be successful. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's disappointing because although, you know, all three of us are Buckeyes, I really did have a lot of respect for the Tennessee program, the type of players they had. They had some really, really dominant college football players um, for a period of time, Peyton Manning being the most famous one, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just how much and how difficult is it in today's day and age once you fall off the wagon like that, even if you're an elite program. We're seeing it in Michigan. We're seeing it at Texas. We're seeing it at Miami. Like what has changed to make it so difficult now to recover from whether it's a death penalty or bad coaching hire. Why is it so much more difficult now? And why are the elite institutions like Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State creating so much separation between themselves and everyone else? Because there are other schools that quite frankly do have the resources and the dedication. They're just not getting it done. Yeah, I think a lot of times it has to do with the landscape of your conference too. I mean, you think about when Phil Former was at Tennessee, Florida was down with Ron Zook and, and you know, wasn't really a prominent national player. Georgia was okay under Mark Rick, never great, just good. And so Tennessee had a unique niche to, that if they could recruit well enough and develop their program well enough and be well coached and fundamentally sound, they kind of had a weaker version of the SEC East than you saw really towards the end of Phil Former's tenure when all of a sudden Mark Rick kind of ramped it up at Georgia, Urban Meyer comes to Florida, and now it's a battle. And that's why they got rid of Phil Former, right? Phil Former still was producing really good football teams. Just the landscape of the SEC East changed, right? Yeah. And then, and then you fast forward beyond Phil Fulmer, and it was just a, I mean, a landslide. Florida was beating the brakes off of Derek Dooley, Lane Kiffin every year, and it was just the landscape of that conference changed, right? It's yeah. no different than right now with Ohio State. Like the the Big Ten is so down that it's going to be hard for anyone to ever compete with Ohio State until you know maybe a coaching change, something happens at Ohio State to bring them back to reality, and a Penn State can surge or a Michigan can surge. It's just kind of the historical trend of college football is when there's those powers in a, in a conference, it's hard to bring a program that maybe is a, I don't want to say second tier, Tennessee's not second tier, but sl slightly lower first tier program into, you know, year after year relevancy. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. So, I mean, we'll see what happens at Tennessee and uh, we, it seems like these stories are bound to happen until we kind of fix some of the underlying problems with college football. You know, a lot of people think, 
that this is going on and is rampant, but a lot of these kids are coming to campus and obviously getting trapped in the pitfalls of fame. Suddenly they're famous and they're seeing everyone else around them getting rich. And they're like, where's my piece of the pie? And that's a dangerous environment um, that I think problems are always going to come up as long as that, that environment exists the way that it does today. Definitely. And you're going to have name, image, and likeness stuff that's going to become legal soon. And there's going to be so many other ways to get compensated that I'm not saying it's not going to be a shady business still on some level, yeah. but but there's going to be ways to get money, right? Yeah. Ways to chase that, get that bag. Yeah. Always, always, totally. always. So moving on from, uh, from, from this sad story, I think one thing we should appreciate as Ohio State fans is just how good our moment is. We are disappointed we lost in the final, but we made it to the final and our program has not suffered um, despite some of the issues we have with Trestle and how that ended, Urban coming in. The fact that we haven't skipped a beat or actually a better program is something that we should all appreciate. But speaking about Ohio State, some of that culture is kind of showing in some of these surprising returns, specifically the, the primary one being Chris Olave. Projected first round, first round draft pick, probably the second or third receiver, probably coming off the board, decides that he wants to come back to Ohio State. This is despite Justin Fields leaving. Zach, give us some insight into why you think that is, because it's, I know you're surprised by it as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it comes down to what what makes a kid decide to do that. I mean, Michael Thomas almost came back also and ended up not because he didn't trust Ed Warner. Honestly, if, if Ed Warner wasn't the coordinator at Ohio State, Michael Thomas would have come back because he wanted to win a, nas- a national championship again, a second one. He wanted to be an All-American and have a tree in Buckeye Grove. So it's a matter of like, what is your like, what is your goal as a career? And Michael yeah. Thomas almost came back despite the fact that I told him he was ready and I wasn't encouraging him to leave. I just said, listen, you, you got to figure out what are you basing this decision on? Is it strictly like preparedness for the NFL and, and financial compensation? If it is, then it's probably time to go. And that's what it was for Chris Olave. Like what business-wise, probably should go. But that doesn't mean that's your criteria for your decision, right? He could say, I want to have a, a tree in Buckeye Grove. I want to win the Bolitnikoff. I want to win a national championship because, by the way, he hasn't yet. Um, it, it just matters what he wanted out of his college career. He Maybe he said, I wanted to break all the records at Ohio State. Yeah. You know, whatever it is, he made that decision, not because he wasn't ready, not because his draft stock wasn't high enough, because I think he would have been the fourth, fifth or sixth receiver taken off the board. But and he might be that next year, too. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if he's going to be a top 10 pick ever. He could be. He's talented. But I think he made a decision that was, you know, it, what he wanted his story to be. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll get more into the the why. But the other surprising one was Thayer Mumford, who, I mean, in terms of grades and actual real life games the guy played pretty much a perfect season he decided to come back to get his degree you know um taking advantage of the extra year of eligibility he was actually i think in his fourth year coming back for a fifth year um any thoughts on that on that decision as yeah, well? see, so i think that was a more more of a business decision like there's play, he played outstanding but to yep. be you know a ta- you know tackles get taken number two overall number three yep. overall and he wasn't going to be that he was going to be a second rounder maybe at best and yep. I, I think part of that was just the the minimal film he had this year right and the, and not only that but the minimal film against great pass rushers 
I mean, he had what Clemson, you know, he had a, he had a handful of good pass rushers he went against, but I think that coming back gives him a chance to solidify himself as the number one tackle in the country. And you're talking about business wise. That's like a $30 million investment to come back for a year. So I, I think that was his main driving factor along with everything we talked about with Olave. I'm sure he also has those goals, right? Yeah. All American national champ, those yeah. types of things. And uh, the other the other part of it is Ryan Day's a really good recruiter, and don't think that that doesn't occur when it's time to decide to go to the NFL, right? Yeah. He is actively recruiting those players to come back. Yes, and and take us into that. Take us into that when you have a guy. You talked about Michael Thomas. You knew he was ready. You told him to go. It seems like that's a that's what you need to do is to always be honest with your players, regardless of if you know that the best interest of the program is to bring the kid back. It seems like the long-term vision of the program and part that you can, you can talk to this in terms of a business from a business standpoint as well, but being, being honest and also understanding that, Hey, I may lose this superstar athlete. And it might impact me, but this is the best thing overall for the program. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it really, and it's not been the MO at Ohio state. I mean, Mickey Marotti and urban Meyer were well known. I mean, players discussed yeah. it. It was, everyone knew it, that they were only cared about the program and were telling every kid in the world to come back. Yeah. And all it takes is you as a position coach. And I don't know how many others did this, but I was always honest. I told yeah. Michael Thomas, he was prepared and he could, he should go. And then we talked about his goals. And then I said, all right, well, if those are your goals, then maybe you should come back. It was never like you need more development. Like urban was telling Mike, you're not ready. You'll get run out of the league. You need one yeah. more year. It's like, okay, calm out, calm down, herbs. Like it's the players see right through bullshit, right? Yeah. But all I had to do was tell Michael Thomas he was ready and I I would support him to go. And I think he should go. That permeated through my whole group, right? So then later when Paris Campbell, Terry McCornan, and Johnny Dixon were thinking about leaving, when I told them they should come back, they were like, Well, he would tell me if he thought I should leave. And yeah, so they right. came back, right? Yeah. That honesty and transparency and giving your honest evaluation, right? It it pays off in the long run. Sometimes certain coaches are so stubborn that they think like, I just have to recruit him. Like he's a, an ignorant 17 year old yeah. and it doesn't work. It never has worked. It's <laughs> half the reason why Noah Brown and Curtis Samuel and Jalen Marshall left. Was yeah. They were getting sold all this stuff that they had a fourth round grade and were terrible and needed another year. And they were like, you know what? If I'm that bad, then I'm not coming back. I've actually, I heard that a lot. The guys who were thinking about leaving would like oh. dodge urban and wouldn't want to talk to him. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, what do you think about, the injury risk component of this. Well, the the good thing is a guy like Chris Olave. If he's he, I don't know what his NFL grade was. I would imagine it was a, first, a second round grade, probably, yeah. which doesn't mean he's not a first rounder. It also doesn't mean he's not a fourth rounder. But you know, those grades are so so futile. But when you get that grade, you can take out an insurance policy. And, and the reality is, unless you have some crazy like career ending injury, like you look at uh, what Jalen Smith for the Dallas Cowboys blew his knee out against us, had an insurance policy, cashed that insurance policy, he got healed, and now he's one of the best linebackers in the NFL. So he made his money still. He's still going to get a second contract that's going to be enormous. I mean, there's an injury risk, but you play you you play that risk. You know what I mean? And that's if you what get a lot the, of guys who are going to come back would be doing is taking out an insurance policy. Just to yeah, you know, and the good thing is Ohio State will pay the premium, yeah. so it's no money out of their pocket. That's nice. to, to help them come back, like I'm, Chris Olave, I promise you, they they sold him that you can come back. We'll pay the max insurance policy. We'll pay the premium. That way, injury or not, you're going to get paid. Right? So financially, he's he's all right. He's going to get paid yeah. either next year in the NFL or if he gets hurt, he's going to get a check from the insurance. Company. Yeah, and I think that's one of the you, you know we we ride the NCAA a lot, but that's one of the uh, more 
attractive and good things that they've done is allow the universities to pay these premiums, um, which, which is actually a recent phenomenon. Yep. But, you know, overall, also beyond the business standpoint of this is, you know, we we talk to a lot of guys who make it to the league and it's obviously a dream of many guys to go to the NFL and become this superstar. But I think there's also becoming, especially at places like Ohio State and Clemson, as these guys talk to guys who are actually in the NFL and they realize that it is a business because yeah. everything changes when you go to the NFL because it is, what have you done for me lately? You are competing with every guy in that room to keep your job. And okay. it takes the fun out of football for a lot of guys. And the guys that I talk to, they say that, Football is never more fun than when they were at Ohio State when they get to the NFL. Um, and I think that's that's part of it. And you're also seeing specifically at schools like Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama, the culture is so strong and developed so well. You saw Travis Etienne surprise everyone and come back last year. What is it about the culture that these programs and the family atmosphere, the fraternity um, at these programs that makes guys say, you know what, I can wait for a few million dollars. This yeah. experience is so valuable. I don't, I want to have another year of it. Well, I'm going to be honest. I, I think just speaking to Ohio State specifically, Ryan Day's program is very different from Urban Myers. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I don't want to say it's more laid back, but it's way, it's way more enjoyable for, mm -hmm. for an athlete. It just yeah. is. And I've heard that from probably a dozen or two dozen players. And it's still very intense, still very focused, still very uh, development oriented. It's still all the positives that was Urban's program. It's just not as rigorous and awful to go through because to a player, I don't know a single player that didn't leave when they left, didn't like text me or come back in the offseason and be like, man, I am so glad I'm not here anymore. Like yeah. they loved playing at Ohio State, but they yeah. didn't want to go through all the nonsense that Urban put them through. And yeah. you call it nonsense. That's that's not fair. But you know what I mean. Just the mental the mind games, the mind, yeah, the mind games, games, the mental play. gymnastics, like the constant yeah. psychology. You know, just constant, constant. And once they left, it was like a relief. Like, oh, I can actually just train hard now and worry about football and no classes. Don't have to worry about urban. Like playing with my mind. Like it was just nice. Uh, and, and and that's what I think Ryan has alleviated. Like players. Like I've had several players tell me, I just enjoy it. Like I really love every part about my day at yeah. Ohio state. And that, that makes it more appealing to come back. And you know, that's the way it is with Dabo. I mean, they're going down yeah. water slides and playing volleyball and having a grand old time down in Clemson. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And Partha, you know, one of the things that, that we always hear about in business that's kind of underestimated by a lot of entrepreneurs is actually having an exit plan, right? Like, if if somebody were to come in tomorrow and offer you X hundreds of millions of dollars for your company, how do you go through that process of deciding, you know, not even if it's a great amount of money that's on the table, you may still say no, right? Because it's not the right fit, the right partnership, the right chemistry for where you see your brand is heading. How do you go through that process from a business standpoint? It's interesting because I think that's the disconnect between what I would consider, you know, the regular fan perspective and whether it's business or sport or entertainment, like we talk about the Chappelle deal all the time yeah. that he turned down, you know, whenever somebody says no to money, we act like they're crazy. And, yeah. you know, life's not about money. It's, it's just genuinely not, it can, money can enhance your life. It can provide financial freedom, but it's just not the purpose of what we're doing here. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me 
when guys pick something that that they're passionate about. But you know, it's I, I always get curious because and Olave was a big surprise when you guys told me earlier because I mean that that's somebody who would have a thriving career in the NFL and I understand the game is different at that level. So for me personally, you know, it's it's about you know, thinking about in his shoes is that different style of football going to be as enjoyable as what he's already got with probably his roommates that he loves living with, his like friend circle that he loves hanging out with, you know, Ohio State, you know, it's a it's a fun place to be, you know what I mean? So that you've got a lot of stuff going on. Whereas if he elevates up a level, he's a rookie again. He's got to deal with all the, you know, hazing or whatever the NFL is going to do. He's got to deal with all the BS of having to earn a spot back onto the team when he's already a star. Now he's naturally talked about. So, I mean, I understand that. I understand why people would want to leave that. And even from a business context, it's very hard to, to tell somebody to leave their business, to buy it from them. If they're genuinely loving what they're doing and growing, it would take yeah. an absurd number uh, to get them to stop. Right. But at the end of the day, like why, why do why does the NFL pay so much? You know, why, why do these sports leagues put such a premium on people who put in that kind of work and can handle that kind of pressure and atmosphere? Cause it truly is demanding. And you know, the only thing I've learned in life um, with regards to money is that when you get paid more, you have to deal with a lot more BS. Yeah. And so, you know, I could totally understand the plight of a 21 year old, 22 year old saying, you know what, maybe I'll just do that next year. Yep. Yep. There's a lot. There's a lot of political nonsense, you know, political workings in the NFL that are just just awful. To be honest with you, I mean, you, you, Chris Olave could be a first rounder, go to the wrong team, and never be heard from again. I mean, I've had players that did that, and it's just it's it's a struggle. And then you look at a guy like Michael Thomas. I mean, he signs this extraordinary deal, which was really one yeah. his talent to his situation. Right? Yeah. That's how he got to that position. And then he goes out this year, and he's struggling to try to play. And what we find out now is he's going to have surgery because his ankle's so messed up and he tried to fight through it to play with Drew Brees one yeah. last time. But all year people were like, oh, he got paid all that money. Now look at him. He's not as good. It's like, bro, he just needs surgery. Relax. Yeah. yeah. But it, it, you could completely kill your chance for a next contract in a situation like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, last topic, you know, speaking of politics and the NFL, um, we've been talking about it the last couple of weeks. So I figure it's time to actually – talk about it for real now. Urban Meyer is the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. We've talked at length about his personality just about 10 minutes ago about the mind games that he plays with these college kids and psychology. I think he's more of a, a psychologist than he is a coach, actually. And that's, that's what he does. Now, he's going to go and try to apply his theories at an NFL level with guys, the part that just talked about are getting paid millions of dollars and are pros themselves. Talk to us about that, the situation in Jacksonville. First, why you think he took the job? And secondly, you know, his strengths that could help him be successful and the weaknesses that could probably hold him back. Yeah, so I think one of the most interesting notes is usually when you're dealing with an NFL head coach, you're like, well, half this team makes more than you, right? Like, how, how can you really get after him when they're the highest paid. He's going to be the fourth highest paid person in the organization. There's only yeah. three three players paid high, more than him yearly. Yeah. So he's kind of bringing a big stick financially. <laughs> That's the start yeah. of this conversation. <laughs> um, but 
I, I, I'm shocked he did it. I think the reason he did it was because this is his opportunity to cement himself in that same category as Nick Saban. He's yeah. all about legacy, right? That's yeah. why he didn't support me when everything went down. It's, he's, he's all about protecting his legacy and his image. And, and he, that's what's important to him, which you can't fault him for that. And I think that he, could, he has a chance if he goes to Jacksonville and can be successful, he will do something Nick Saban didn't do. Right. Nick Saban did something he did in winning seven national titles. Yeah. But if he could be successful in the NFL, he did something that Nick Saban failed at. And yeah. he has a he has a hard on for Nick Saban now. And no matter what anyone wants to tell you, he is obsessed with Saban and he feels yeah. like it's him and Saban for the last, you know, decade, decade and a half. Yeah. And so that's why I think he did it. I think he's gonna have a lot of work to do. One, all of his hires so far are a bunch of college guys, which makes me really nervous because he knows nothing about the league at that level, right? He's never coached there, never been a part of the NFL. He yeah. sent guys there. I guess that's one thing that you could say. But he's got to surround himself with NFL bloodlines, guys that have been in the league and are really good. And I think that's his next step, obviously. And then he's really got to transform himself into more of a CEO. Like He started to do it at Ohio State at, when Ed Warner was the coordinator, what, 2015, 2016, and he tried to interject himself, and it only made things worse. When he hired Ryan Day and Kevin Wilson, he pulled himself out a little bit and became more of a CEO. He was still involved, but he wasn't as involved. And I think that's he started realizing that that was his role. That was his the way he could still be successful. And so if he could continue and grow in that path, there's I have no doubt that he'll be successful in the NFL. He just got to stay the CEO and don't try to run quarterback power on third and three. You don't, know I mean? don't, don't sign JT Barrett and bring him back right. to compete with uh, Trevor Lawrence. Can we rewind a second and talk about the – I'm not familiar with this mind game stuff. Is this – Oh, my. So can you can we talk about this on the podcast? <laughs> we can we talk can, about whatever you want to talk about, Bart. Yeah. <laughs> can you fill me in here, Zach? I mean, the, the man ha has a psycho psychology degree. Like, that's what he yeah. studied. That's what he does. He Everything he does is calculated. Yeah. I mean, we used to talk about it when we would show up to Tom Herman and I used to talk about it. When things were going really bad, maybe with your position group or the offense sucked, like it, you knew it was going to be bad and it was never as bad as you thought it was going to be. But when things were going really well, like there'd be times where I'd wake up. I'm like, shit, I just got two kids committed. The top two at our, on, on our board in recruiting. My players are playing their ass off. It was like 2014. We win the national championship. My group balled out. I, I had a recruiting class that was like top in the country. I'm going to work like, what's he going to say to me? Like, we're good. Those were the days where you got blindsided and blown up by him for something tiny that you're like, whoa. Like, he blew up on me for recruiting letters that no recruits open. He blew up on me, fired me, fired his son-in-law, like all this stuff just to, I guess, motivate me. And it's like the, the mind games were just, I mean, they were out insane. Another level. Wow. He'd fire you and hire you right back. <laughs> he, he fired me like six times. The only time he, like when he really fired me, he didn't even fire me. It was weird. He fired me like 20 times before that, most of the time for nothing. And and then then you just kept moving. You went to the next meeting and didn't leave. <laughs> wow. I always wondered like what would happen if I really got in my car and went home and played with yeah. my kids. Like what happens? And he said, and even the players, like there were certain players that oh. he could get away with it for, but then there were certain guys once they got that seniority that that I heard, like he would try to say something to them in the pra in practice and it would be so off the wall that they would just go off on him. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, like he tried it with Philly Brown, you know, <laughs> he tried it with Philly Brown one time. They got a huge fight and, and, and honestly, they came out of it with a different respect for each other, but yep. Philly wasn't going to take it. And uh, he always, he always used to say like, 
be careful, be careful what you ask for, right? Don't back yourself in a corner and, and you better know what you're getting into before you coach a kid hard, right? And you have yeah. to know how to do it. That's part of the psychology of it. Like knowing what each kid, what will make him better and what, honestly, what will he respond to? And Urban, yeah. you know, Urban made mistakes on that a couple of times. I remember one time he called a kid a bitch joking around, like, like really in a, almost like a endearing way, right? He was like, what's up, bitch? Or something like that. And a kid was one of my players. He snapped. Yeah. And like, then they had a real, after he snapped on Urban, they had a real conversation about, you know, he was like, where I come from, like, if you, if you call somebody that, like, that's the lowest form of disrespect and like, I'm gonna have to fight you. Like, don't ever call me that word. Yeah. And, you know, they had a, they had a real conversation and they grew from it. So he made mistakes on it, but it just, the psychological a- approach that he took was just like, oh That's my God, it's one of the things I'm so grateful I don't have to deal with anymore. One of the, it's funny, it's 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 two sides of a coin, right? If you really want to be great, you know, and, and I had this conversation with Gary on Conley, he said, I didn't, I didn't really care for Urban, but I knew that if I did what he told me to do, that I was going to be the best version of myself. And that's why he said he didn't mind it. Even the, yeah. the the fights that he got into, he was like, I kind of figured out that this was Urban's way of trying to unlock all of our greatness. Yeah, that's what it is. And, you know, I, I was fortunate that I was with the guy for, what, 13 years. Yeah. So I used to, I, I honestly was like the, the, the program counselor for coaches that, <laughs> like, they just, they didn't know how to respond to it. And it got to the point after probably 2013-ish when my group started playing better and he still would do things. And I was like, all right, this doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I know why yeah. he's doing it. And that's why people, when people ask me to say, was it awful working for him? And I was like, it can be awful, but if you see big picture and you can figure yeah. him out, like, you know, he's just trying to motivate you and push you. And I was 20 times the coach when I got fired than I was when I got hired. And that was because of him. And so I was never... I'm not, I'm still not angry at him. Like, I don't mind the times that he was just ridiculous to me. And like you said, I'm sure Gary has the same way. Most of the great players are, they understood. They didn't like it. They just understood. They're ready to get out of there whenever they could. Yeah. They're they're, they're done with it, but they understand it. Yeah. 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 And you know, it's interesting because I always think about the, you know, there's always like the hard coach and then there's the players coach dynamic. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think that's important both in sports and in business. You have to have somebody who's going to, you know, get everyone to sit up straight. You know what I mean? And then, you know, the other person gets to be the good cop. But without those people who are willing to be the bad cop, you ultimately don't have that, you know, driving factor that pushes people to really cross their threshold and and reach new limits. Yeah, and I I think that's it. You're absolutely right. And I think what I experienced in Urban's program, I don't know how this is in other programs, but the best coaches knew how to be Jekyll and Hyde to contrast urban, right? Because he had a way of being like extremely hard on certain position groups like mine, because he knew it so well, and certain specific players where you had to be the good cop. But then yeah. also you'd turn around and he treated Michael Thomas like gold. So I had to be the bad cop and be hard on him, right? And coach him hard. So yeah. you had to you had to knew, know how to manage him as much as you had to manage your group. And the yeah. best position coaches we had did that phenomenal. And then some of them just didn't know how to do it and they imploded. The other thing you appreciate about people like too is are they consistently who they are with everyone that they mm-hmm. encounter? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's true for urban. I mean, I, from a, from a business standpoint, what I always say, you said it earlier, Zach is what he did for Ohio state is probably from a culture CEO building a culture that's going to last forever. If Ohio state didn't hire urban Meyer at the time that they hired him, Boy. we wouldn't be where we're at. 
And he's the as hard as he is on his players, he's hard on the graphic design team. Oh, he's yeah. hard on every single player because every single player that makes that program go, and you're equally, right? And then it's also about the phase of life, understanding who you're dealing with, right? Like I know now looking back, when I'm 18, 19, 20 years old and I'm getting my first taste of freedom in college and I didn't have someone writing me like my parents were writing me in high school, it becomes tricky if someone doesn't fill that role. And I think Urban understood, understands that and understands the mindset of the 18 to 21 year old and how you bring greatness out of that age group through the psychological studies he's done. Oh, yeah. Now the question is, does he understand the 22 to 33 year old, you know, that's really, there is a point where that type of motivation stops working. You yeah. know what I mean? There's, there's, no an, there's an age people cross where, you know, you kind of have to be a little bit more, more straight with them. Yeah. What's going to be interesting is because he's, he's dealt with this demographic before, right? He, yeah. because he doesn't treat his staff much differently from his players. So yeah. he, He's been dealing like I was 27 when, when I got hired at Ohio State. That's about the, the I guess, a little bit later in the NFL career, but that's about the demographic he's dealing with. And I'm telling you, if he deals with those players like he dealt with me, whew, they're going to lose a lot of games and he's going to be out of there quick. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I mean, I think that's part of the uh, part of the difference in the NFL, right, is how much leverage the players have yeah. because they're such valuable assets. It, se it seems like he does understand. Like, here's what I, I will say is, he took two years off, right? And the thing you know, Zach, is no one's more prepared than Urban Meyer mm -hmm. is and does as much preparation. So it seems like he really did study the landscape of the NFL. Oh. And I think he does have enough self-awareness, and that's probably the reason why he didn't take an NFL job sooner because if he had really been aggressive, I think he probably could have gotten the Browns job last year with how much love the ownership group has for him. Mm -hmm. um, but I think he really two things happened and you can correct me if I'm wrong. His love for Ohio state is actually genuine and real. Like for him to go to Texas would have been almost impossible for him. That's a step back legacy wise step back. Nothing tops Ohio state. And I don't think he wanted to do anything to harm the future of Ohio state. Mm -hmm. And then the second part of it is if I'm not going to take one of those jobs, this analyst stuff isn't cutting it. Yeah. I've got to go to the NFL. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is, it kind of goes back to the Chris Olave conversation. It's like, what do you what do you want out of life? Like, what do you want your legacy to be? Like, it's the same thing. I, he didn't want to be Lee Corso is, is what what he told us. Right. Yeah. He, he wants to be Bear Bryant. So yeah. you can't do that. Talking on TV, putting on mascot heads. You can't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's it's to getting to your point. He's the most calculated man ever. Like there's a reason he went to Bowling Green and all of a sudden had Josh Harris, a Heisman contender yeah. at Bowling Green. He goes yeah. to Utah and Alex Smith happens to be in the quarterback room, right? Goes yeah. to Florida, Chris Leak's there. Like he 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 always put himself in great situations. Oh, by the way, Ohio State had a guy named Braxton Miller. I don't know if anyone's heard of him, but he was a young kid here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you look at the Jaguars, I mean, the, the cap space they have and the draft picks they have. I, I, I saw a graphic. It was like an X, uh, you know, an X axis and a Y axis of where each team was. And the Jaguars were in the far upper right hand corner, like alone, not even no one even near them of how much potential they have for this off season. So yeah, he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah. And he took the right job in the right market. Yep. If his, his timing system is good in the league too. Oh, considering, yeah. Considering, yeah, I mean, 
with Breeze retiring, you know, Brady kind of near the end of his career, he's got a pretty open lane. The only person to really challenge is the Chiefs and Mahomes. That's what he, that's one thing he's going to have to deal with right there though. Yeah. <laughs> what do you what do you think about this this Do you think this is all just talk about him potentially taking Justin Fields over Trevor Lawrence? Yeah, I mean, he would be it would be the first step to failure and not that Justin's going to fail, but Trevor Lawrence is by far the number one overall pick, in my opinion. I, I think he takes Trevor Lawrence. I know he probably wants to take Justin Fields, but I just don't know that that he can do that. I mean, can you imagine if he makes that jump to the NFL, doesn't take Trevor Lawrence, even if Justin Fields is good, and Trevor Lawrence becomes the next Mahomes, he will I mean, his career will be over in the NFL immediately. That's yeah, all. That, you almost have to take him. And I think it's all speculation. If you watch yeah. the the they talked about this on, on Big Noon kickoff multiple times and he said look Justin's ceiling is just as high it's just the Trevor Lawrence has another year of experience and that matters you know yeah it definitely matters especially yeah. Justin only having half a year so Justin has one and a half years Trevor Lawrence has three years essentially yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely well it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how this all all shapes up you know a lot of news constantly happening you know and uh our Browns, you know, the reason I really wore this orange was for the Brownies. Um, good season, good season there as well. We'll see what the what the future holds. He's coming into the AFC, so we'll, we'll see if uh, how long our 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 good run as a good team will last. Man, awesome! Thanks for joining us today, Zach. It's been a fun college football sprint and. Maybe truly our last, but if we miss you more, we'll bring you back. Hey, you just call me. You know where I live. <laughs> <laughs> just come knock on the door. That's it. I'll be here. <laughs> I appreciate it, fellas. All right, guys. Thanks, man. Show the Pilot Boys some love by getting some of our exclusive merch at shop.pilotboys.com. You're listening to the Pilot Boys Podcast. Hey, guys, this is Partha. You might know me as a Pilot Boy, but I'm also the CEO of Lasso. Lasso is a high-performance lifestyle brand that makes the Lasso Sock 2.0, the most functional sock ever to help you stay moving on any adventure you choose. Lasso uses patented compression technology with scientifically proven ankle stability to support key ligaments and tendons as well as moisture-wicking materials and built-in strike padding, so every single step is stable, soft, and cool. Lasso socks are also used to treat foot and ankle conditions like plantar fasciitis, Achilles pain, ankle soreness, circulation issues, and more. Check them out at lassogear.com or at lassogear on social media. All right, welcome to the Pilot Boys podcast. Uh, this is Parthen V, ready to interview Justin Forsett, Super Bowl champ, wonderful CEO and friend. Um, Justin, we've had you know an interesting way that we've met through business instead of. Um, through any sort of sport connection, um, which is always exciting for me. And I, you know, I'm a big admirer of what you're building with Hustle Clean. Uh, mm -hmm. Thanks for taking your time to come on the show. We're excited to ask you a few questions. No, Let's thank you. Super excited to be on. Awesome, Let's bro. Get... Let's um, get to yeah. it. So I, I really just, you know, we were talking about how we wanted to actually ask you some questions. And, you know, there's a lot we can dig into with football, but there's also a lot we want to dig into with Hustle Clean. So I think we'll spend, you know, a, sh a shorter amount of time on football than you're probably used to. And then let's get into the business side of things after that. So, you know, one of the things that um, I, you know, was very curious about is your upbringing. First of all, you know, going through high school in Texas and then 
having Notre Dame pull an offer for you and then ending up going to Cal. Um, you know, I'd love to kind of hear your perspective uh, growing up, you know, as an undersized guy under recruited going through that journey and, and with the dream to play pro, when did that dream really happen for you? And uh, what, what was that moment like kind of going through high school? Man, uh, it was a tough uh, line for me it's with you. Uh, I grew up in Florida, in a small town in Florida. And, uh, my junior year, my family decided to pick up and move uh, across the country uh, to Texas. I shot my high school career. Um, the place that I grew up in, small town, 3,000 people make it out to accomplish their dreams and goals and aspirations in life. So um, families are the opportunity for me to graduate and you know, be able to put myself in position to go to a Division One school. Packed up and went there uh, to Texas and was having some uh, some really good years, um, state championships, breaking some records, and uh, uh, the same kind of theme that I heard my entire life was popping up. You know, it's too short, too small, too slow, all those things. And I just kept battling, uh, focus on what I could control. And around my, after my senior season, going into the All-Star game, Notre Dame offered me a scholarship, and I'm I'm dead. And uh, my family is excited. We're getting Notre Dame merch. And uh, even when I was playing basketball, I can remember coming out of the tunnel, and people, you know, they were introduced me as the uh, Notre Dame recruit. And uh, a week before signing day, they told me they didn't need me anymore. It's being crushed. Uh, going into my basement, crying my eyes out, not knowing as a 17-year-old future was going on. Uh, I remember uh, getting on my knees and praying, crying, and just that, that moment uh, really put me in a place of peace where I didn't know what was going to happen, but I just had to tell it what I could. Hope. So uh, just making sure that I was preparing and you know putting my position possible for when the opportunity did call. And uh, Cal called a couple months down the road in their spring game, got hurt and uh, offered me a scholarship. And uh, it was an extreme blessing to Cal. Not only, uh, you know, at that time we were ranked number 11 uh, football team in the country in the NCAA and uh, also the number one public institute in the world uh, at that time. So it was a really uh, cool opportunity for me to go and play with some amazing players, Aaron Rodgers, Deshaun Jackson, Marshawn Lynch and I came in at the same time. Uh, yeah, and we shared the kind of load until he left his junior and then my senior year. Um, you know, I figured, you know, I started and I started and broke broke some records there at Cal and put myself in position, you know, get drafted for the NFL. And, you know, after that season, I knew that uh, I was one step closer, uh, you know, getting picked up. 233 in the seventh round and the draft was pretty special. Yeah. It's uh, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of go back to the high school part, right? Like I think mm -hmm. I see this story a lot with guys who are under recruited um, and it's, it's something that's missed. There's always someone, whether it's an NFL get, getting a guy into the NFL or getting them a college offer after the Notre Dame offer got pulled. I heard that your high school coach was actually sending film out to different people. I just wanted to, ask you about that because I think it's important to highlight the value of having people who believe in you outside of yourself kind of also putting their reputation on the line. It happens in football and sports, uh, sports a lot. And it seemed like that helped you in your journey as well. Yeah, no, my coach helped and my brother helped. Uh, still to this day, I uh, got into Cal, um, but 
um, been, been able to share this story a couple of times. It's hands now. But yeah, my coach sent out some tapes. My family, we sent out some tapes to the West Coast. The teams across, across the country that we felt that was in need. Um, and I would have an opportunity to play. And uh, my brother, who was, uh, I want to say, a freshman, sophomore in college at the time, he was getting on the phone and calling every university for the most part. He was pretending uh, that he was a football coach. Uh, he made up a name. And, he, was, and uh, he would tell the coaches when he talked to them. He would say, hey, you know, my name is Coach Williams, the guy here that sent us some tape, and he's too good for us. So I want to share his information with you. And literally, uh, we got in touch with the, the cow, got the tape, and they were doing a background check, like, man, what's wrong? How did this guy get open? My brother's like, I don't know. I mean, I mean, he fell. He's a diamond rough man. I think you guys should have him. So, uh, so that's a lot. I got in Thailand. They all talked to a couple weeks later. Family will do anything for you, right? <laughs> including lot, including lots for you. <laughs> yeah. So tell yeah. tell us about about that experience, Cal. You played with Aaron Rodgers and Marshawn Lynch, two of the biggest names. But mm-hmm. you, I, you were in a running back room with Marshawn. Like the thing about Marshawn that amazes people is that. He's authentically who he is, but don't underestimate the man's intelligence and how his brain actually works because he's projecting the way that he projects. Just tell me how crazy it was to go to college with this guy. <laughs> experiences. I still remember the clip, the famous clip of him him taking the medical card. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, it was definitely an uh, interesting time. You know, one, a culture shock coming from, you know, Texas at the time going into Berkeley. And, yeah. Uh, you know, being a roommate with a guy straight out of Oakland, and uh, it, we became very close uh, early on. Uh, it was no like ill will. We didn't know it was going to be there uh, at the time that we got uh, to Cal. Um, at the same time, so it was pretty cool to to build that bond with him, room with him that first year, and all together we grew up together. Um, you know, matured, um, learned the ropes. Um, from being a kid all the way until we left around 20 years old. So uh, it was it was special to the guy, man. He's been this way his whole life. Like, definitely he's got this rough uh, side to him that, you know, that he's built from his from his city, has made him, you know, from Oakland. Yeah. In a way in order to to survive. And uh, But he just has this big heart to serve and get back to this community, those around him. Even when I was in college, he would give the share off his back to somebody who's in need or he'd give food to somebody. And, um, you know, that that has never changed. Uh, Marshawn also, you know, through through the circles I've heard, uh, similar to you, is, has been really intelligent with how he's used his money from the league. Um, mm-hmm. Was that, I know Aaron Rodgers is too, having, having started the RX3 fund out here on the West Coast. Is that something that's more in the culture there? Was that something that was unique amongst the group of you guys that went into the league? Like what what created the, you know, the thought of handling your money the right way and being smart about investing and, and the business mindset um, so early for that group? Man, I just think definitely it's the culture uh, in the school. It's competitive on the football field, but maybe even more so in the classroom forces you to th- know what the end is going to look like when football ends or when sports end and uh we got a lot of resources there we're trying to think beyond sports so uh especially at that tail end of your career when you're leaving your year 
uh, there's just a lot of good, good counsel around at, uh, at Berkeley to kind of really have guys, uh, uh, you know, them think uh, about what the, the next chapter will look like after sports. A lot of guys took a hold of that, Marshawn, me, one of them, Aaron. Uh, we have a number of guys that are doing some amazing things outside of sport. Um, so uh, definitely part of the culture. That's yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing. Like you said, for a school that's that's as academically strong as it is, for you guys to also have a dominant football team and produce players, because it's even today you have you have players from Cal who are making an impact on the league. How difficult was that balance um, in terms of of being a, a scholar athlete at a, at an academic institution that's that competitive as well? Oh man, it, it was different. It was difficult. Uh, you learn fast. Um, you just get with a program, resources too to help the players out. You know, we study hall every uh, every day uh, for the most part, and uh, just like a ton of help uh, to make sure everybody's staying on top of it. But sure, lots of office hours with professors to making sure that you're not falling behind and um, you know on top of your grades. But uh, they're gonna hold you accountable. Did you get enough? I've always wanted to ask this question. At a rigorous academic institution like that, how do you get enough sleep to handle the physical demands of football too? Uh, sleep and food, those things in college, I mean, you just don't, that's just, you don't those things. Uh, uh, this just is what it is when you're young. I guess you can just run on, on that uh, time and you don't, you don't need much, but yeah, uh, we just made it out. You, you figure out how to survive and you know make it happen. You you're very resourceful. You be efficient with your time, management skills. You have people on us on you day and out. You know, and for athletes, it's it's pretty. For us, people tell us what to do every day of our lives. You know, when you're in that program from high school on up, like your schedule is kind of built out mm-hmm. already. So literally, just like following the game plan and just uh, following the script that everybody else, you're not in it on your, uh, by yourself. That's awesome, man. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. I, when I went to college at, at uh, I went to Georgia Tech, they said, mm-hmm. there's a saying, you, you get to pick between three things and you can only have two of the three. You can have sleep, you can have good grades, you can have a social life. You got to give up one, you can have the other two. Yeah, exactly. I like that. <laughs> man, that's great. <laughs> So um, talk to me a little bit about, um, obviously you have, you know, had an awesome pro career. Um, The process of getting yourself into the mentality that you wanted to go pro, when did that happen for you? Was that in high school? Was that in college that you really decided you wanted to take it seriously and, and do it professionally for a period of time? When did that come together for you? And then what was the process like prepping for it? Um, Not just physically, but also, uh, all of the other parts of it, getting an agent, et cetera? Uh, for me, I mean, realistically, my goal to get to the NFL started at 12 years old. I came from very humble beginnings, and that was going to be my way out. So a guy named Barry Sanders uh, playing on Sundays, and he was a small guy like myself, and I watched him excite the crowd and dip that defense on Sunday and uh, make a living from it. And I, I was like, okay, this is what I'm and uh, I was going to do whatever necessary to get to that level. And, uh, yeah, that, that was that it was a actual it was bigger than the sport and bigger than a dream for me. 
you know, I go back and forth. Uh, but I always say I, I can't really tell if I was uh, chasing a dream from a nightmare. And I just had that fuel from all the adversity I faced that I wanted it. And I was going to do whatever it took to get it. So that's that's when I got there, my mind was always kind of like, OK, I'm going to get there, be to get in the NFL, but stay a long time and be great at it. So, uh, you know, I was college I make sure I was eating the right thing. Nutrition was important. I knew I was stretching. Uh, I ran track uh, to improve my speed. Um, you know, when I got into the NFL, I was a guy that was, you know, finding out new skills, learn how to catch. You know, when I was a rookie that I never did before in my life because I heard that the more you can do, the longer you fight. So that that was kind of like my mindset. I was going to do whatever it took and excel at what I could for attitude and preparation to make sure I stuck. Yeah. Where where'd you learn that? Like that mentality, right? Just looking at it in such a focused and intentional way. Where does that come from for you? Well, I, I had hardworking parents, my mom and dad, uh blue collar day in and day out. So I had an uncle that he was the first to really play uh, college football in our family, went to Rutgers to play uh when I was a young kid and I would watch him run miles and have a weight set in his uh, in his room that I would use a curl bar. Um, you know, and I saw it and then I would read about it. I was reading about individuals who had success that came from very humble beginnings like my face adversities, people like Wilma Rudolph, people like Jim Abbott, the baseball player, uh, those people that really struck. You know, I would really listen and read uh, stories about the, just giving up game, just whatever blueprint that they laid, I was going to follow. I knew Eddie George, he did badly. Uh, I, you know, I knew Herschel Walker. He he didn't have weight, so he did push-ups. So I was doing the push-ups. A lot of things that I was just like, this is the type of focus that I have. This is the discipline. This is the commitment that I need in order to. So I just gotta follow the plan. Yeah, I wanted I wanted to talk, touch base on a couple of things. One is this height thing. I th I feel like the NFL has these weird <laughs> issues when it comes to to measurables because. <laughs> The truth is there are plenty of, especially at your position mm -hmm. and running back, having a low center of gravity actually can be a benefit. But there's like these stigmas in the NFL. If you're under a certain height, like they don't even evaluate you the same. They just like kind of decide, OK, he's not big enough without actually fully evaluating you. How much did that bother you throughout your football? First in college and the NFL, it's like, wait, there are plenty of guys that are my height or lower who play my position who are thriving in the NFL. That's not even, that's not even a real measurable that you guys are knocking me for. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and people that paved the way, you know, Barry Sanders, uh, uh, Eddie George, not Eddie George, but, uh, 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 Morris Jones drew. Yeah. Brian Westbrook, uh, are people that really paved the way, uh, for, uh, people, uh, that were on the shorter side of that position. And now you see it more prevalent throughout the league where it's not really anymore. But, yeah, it was frustrating, you know, you know, trying to say, you know, yeah, I have the ability to get your back um, and be at every down back. You know, that was just kind of like no one wanted to take that bet, you know, even high school, college, you know, and in the NFL even more so. Uh, seventh year to get that feature role. And, uh, yeah, it, it's frustrating at the time, but – and that worked out for me, man. I, I have no complaints. 
Yeah, and 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 the, the second part of it is that once you got into the league, I feel like because you were doubted, kind of how I read into, I read something that 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 you said that that sticks with me is that you said I was going to leverage the NFL the same way the le- the NFL leverages us as athletes and uses us and maximizes us. I was going to make sure that I did that. Where did that come from? Like, where did that attitude? Was it part of it knowing that? your your chances might be limited or or was it was it something else that kind of drove that i'm going to leverage this thing the way they leverage me man when you when you're when you're on a college standpoint you just see that your your face is everywhere you're on billboards you had a day people wearing your trees at that time in ncaa football game people playing with you on on playstation and xbox and all those things and it's like you get nothing from it, you know. Um, you know, you know they're gonna use your ability and leverage it as much as they can for their game. But we have to learn, you know. At some point, we got to push back and say, okay, how can we leverage uh, what they're giving? So uh, that was my mindset early on, especially getting into college and really seeing people come in, and Gatorade come in and like have these like group discussions on like, what do you think about this? idea and concept and what would you do I'm like but nobody looked like us that was like no one and no exec that looked like us in the room no one from the culture that looked like us so it's kind of why you know we started the uh, with, with hustle clean was there's no voice but yeah I make sure that you know I was leveraging as much as I could because football is not for long and uh, I hired six so uh, I didn't know when the end was going to come I just want to be prepared for it when it did one thing I just I really want to point out about the mentality, and I think that this is something that gets me excited every time we do these interviews. It's you know coming out of Ohio, so V and I are both from from Columbus, and you know small town upbringing. I, v, are you from Columbus or Cleveland? No, I'm actually from Toledo, Toledo Northwest right. Ohio. So both from Ohio, right? There's not a lot of drive around the community you grew up mm-hmm. in, right? And every time we do one of these interviews. It's so exciting to me to see somebody who looks at adversity and says, instead of you know saying, wow, look how hard things are, says, okay, how can I take advantage of this? How can I you know, fight the beast and win? And it's so, I think there's so many things that you do in the way you think and just the way that you're answering these questions that are subtext and like built into the way you see the world, like uh, the way you methodically did research all the way leading up into, you know, getting into the league, the way you put in the time and put in the work based on what you saw other people doing. And you didn't set a bar that was based on your peers. You set a bar based on, you know, what an actual, you know, pro athlete or high level athlete was doing. There's so many of these subtle habits that you picked up along the way. And it seems from the way that you're telling the story without much friction. Whereas I I meet and, you know, see a lot of business leaders or people who want to be business leaders who are so prey to their own mental shortcomings who really just trap themselves in a loop right and never really get over it so uh, i want to ask you has this has it always been like that for you has it always been something where you know you have the goal and you just execute the steps to get there or have you ever felt yourself getting in your own way along the path and you know, I've always been insane uh, to a degree, right? So I've always had like this crazy 
faith and just like crazy uh, belief uh, within myself um, that, you know, it both athlete because i mean you have to be insane to you know be run up against 300 pound men every single you know <laughs> every day um but also as an entrepreneur level of insanity and i always believed that i was going to be the exception and like i when i can recall even seventh grade uh this uh, is my math class and uh she stood up at the uh, front of the class told us that somebody else come in or a, libra a librarian come in and say like okay, only this amount of people are going to go this percentage of people maybe five percent are going to go from high school to college, and then you know, less than one percent are going to go from college to NFL. and you know taking that information in i'm just like all right cool i'm gonna be the less than one percent i'm gonna be the one percent that, that makes yeah. it yeah um, for everybody I else <laughs> so they say the same thing about starting a company where it's like 98% of companies fail, right? Or something like yep. that. So yep. then my take is, okay, so that means for 2% of people, they succeed 100% of the time. Yeah. I mean, that's that 2%. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that, that's the way you have to look at it. And, you know, it, also it's like your experiences also kind of help you build who you are. And one of the things that I, I see in your NFL career is that, you played for a lot of different teams. You went to a lot of different markets. I wanted to ask you how experiencing different, even football, because different organizations have different cultures, different cities have different vibes. How did that kind of help you as well? At the time, you're probably like, damn, I'm cut again. But at the same time, every, at the same time when you get cut, either you can look at it as like, damn, I got cut, or you look at the next opportunity as a new blessing. And it seems like you consistently were able to do that throughout your career. Each stop you got better at and you, you took advantage of fully. So can you take us into that, that experience of like never having a consistent job and always kind of having to jump from place to place? Yeah, no one, it was great because of relationships and, you know, especially in the business world, relationships is resource in life, uh, in, even outside the business world. So uh, that was great um, to develop, you know, have resources I can reach out to, you know, at least, you know, seven different cities now uh, that I go and call and, you know, have a relationship with. Uh, but two, also, you know, everybody wants a breakthrough, but nobody wants to be broken. Yeah. And I believe that there's beauty in brokenness, right? There's a, there's the ability to be refined and pruned in adversity in ease and um i didn't have an easy road i didn't have uh, you know a sense of ease in my career but it kind of built that armor that i needed in order to take me to the next level i didn't ever enable to get to the point of you know being 29 and going to a pro bowl and getting my biggest contract and you know being with my family and all those things and uh, my seventh year like those moments because i had the perspective like okay these things aren't gonna break me like those those bits of where I've been trying to let go, did like I was always going to take something from it and get better. That's fantastic. So, gotta ask, um, Super Bowl. Can you give some uh, give some background on how all that went down? How did it feel? Well, well, for every team that went to the Super Bowl for me. So, Seattle, I was a year too late. Uh, Broncos, I was a year too late uh baltimore i was a year 
two years too late. So, <laughs> so if you wanted me, I was on your team. We weren't going to the Super Bowl. So that <laughs> was, um, but I did get a Pro Bowl. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the, and the Pro Bowl is an interesting one too because it was um, it was later on in your career, right? And Typically, as a running back, I think the average career is is two and a half years, right? Career span, yep. something short, right? Like that. What is it? What is it like for you? Um, you know, in that role, already undersized, knowing you're taking a lot of hits, having to preserve your body and really build longevity in your position. I know you talked about adding a bunch of other skills, but um, mm -hmm. what was the? I'm sure you went into game after game in just tremendous pain. How how do you handle that, man? Uh, just take care of your body, man. It's the product, you know. Your your livelihood. Take care of your family. So every week, um, you know, every week was different. In the season, you feel a little bit towards the tail end. It gets it gets worse. You know, you're not recovering until you play a game on Sunday. You're not recovering until that Saturday. Um, you know, during the weeks fully. So you know, back end of the season. And uh, yeah, I mean, ice tubs and therapist and you know um you know massage therapists chiropractors you know to make sure I was my body um unlike any year that i did before because i didn't have that you know wear and tear to deal with you know being just a third down running back in a special teams guy most of my career yeah yeah let's 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 talk about the transition but first let's talk about the preparation for the transition as you said you were going to leverage the NFL as much as it leveraged you as you were going through your career each step. I want to kind of see, talk about it. Cause I know you did the, the Harvard executive program that I think the NFL offers as one thing, but what were the things as you were playing and you were going through your NFL career and you were preparing for life after the NFL? Cause I think this is, this is something I tell all the athletes that are my friends is think about it as you're going, don't wait until the end to say, oh, what am I going to do now? Take us into like your journey and the steps you took to make sure you were prepared for the end of your career and your transition into your your successful entrepreneurial career. Now. Yeah, for sure. So early on, just networking, kind of, you know, you know, what I wanted to do, get exposed to different things, like kind of feel around like, oh, I know that what I know about myself. I'm a hard worker. I'm committed. I'm disciplined. I'm a solver. I'm a storyteller. Like, what can I do that, you know, can allow me to be successful um, by using those characteristics and traits? And uh, that stuck out to me being and so I would always go out and share my story. Um, like some people, you know, classrooms where, you know, or uh, schools or churches or youth sports events or charities where, I mean, it's probably maybe a handful of people there sometimes and most people weren't paying attention and uh, just kind of developing the craft, um, you know, putting together footage and writing together my my keynote, um, even on my break time, uh, starting my business at the time. It was around you know, when I was in Seattle, my third year in the league where it's like, OK, this is what I want to do in the entrepreneur space. Um, it's kind of where I'm excited about and I want to be able to create jobs and opportunities for those in my community. And uh, yeah, I kind of just wanted to pay my own path. And uh, so I began to research and put, put people around me that were successful in the industry. Um, I went back to school 
and graduated when I was in Jacksonville. I finished up my last couple of classes doing the, uh, the NFL program. Um, there was a number of things I did, job shadowing uh, throughout the NFL. Um, uh, I was at one point going to get into the player development role uh, that I was thinking about. So I would go out to conferences that they had. Um, I was just, I was everywhere. Uh, just in case I was like trying to be over prepared for when that, when that time came. And what led you from there into hustle clean? Man, it was just, um, it was just something that kind of, it fit. It was the entrepreneur space. Uh, I was doing it with teammates. Uh, so I wasn't in by myself. Uh, felt like, you know, at that time we were really pioneering a, a category and, there was nothing there. Uh, we had to do a lot of educating at first, especially with our initial product, um, the disposable washcloth, antibacterial toilet that removes sweat, dirt, and body odor. And uh, it was kind of weird because people are like, man, why don't you just get in the shower? Like, sometimes you just can't get into a shower. Maybe you're out, you're away from our house. And I'm not going to use a gym shower if I'm in a random 24-hour fitness. I'm, I mean, I'm not that guy. I'm not going to walk barefoot <laughs> into a 24-hour uh, goes gym uh, shower. Uh, so... So it was like educating and, you know, growing in that. I saw the start, see the business growing. Like we just had it on Amazon. It was just like growing year over year. It was just growing. I was like, okay. And then after practice, I started like, okay, let me see if I can get some new distribution uh, for the company. And I would go after practice a long day. I would drive at that time in Washington. I was going like driving up and pulling up to REI with no, um, no appointment or nothing. I was going to local running stores and uh, gyms and just, running events, marathons, and just popping up, giving events, using the press conferences to plug the product and have my other players carry the product out there to the podium uh, to talk about it. And uh, yeah, that's how I got started. And it just kept building, building, building. I wanted, I, wanted, I wanted to talk to you about how it started, right? Because it's, mm -hmm. it's, you went back to your roots and this is something that I think is, is valuable to understand is the value of the relationships that you build along the way. The, you started your company with teammates from Cal, correct? Yep. And, and and talk to us about that, how you guys, you went on to, you all went on to different places, but you yep. stayed connected together. And how did you guys actually even decide together, we're going to come up with this business? Um, because not all, I'm not sure if all of you, all of you guys made it to the NFL or not, but just the value of that relationship and the strength of that bond you build in a locker room. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you want people, you start a business that you trust. Um, having teammates that you went to war with is a good place to start. Uh, I always went back to Berkeley during the offseason to train. Uh, so when I went back, my partners uh, at the time, they were there. Uh, one was a firefighter. The other was a uh, uh, football player. He played like two two years in the NFL on, uh, with the Bills. And uh went into EMT. So I was, was kind of have these brainstorming sessions and got together and started talking about like pain points within the space. And my business partner who was a firefighter. Uh, he had literally uh, got called into work and he was doing a workout and uh, he stopped by sports authority and asked him uh, if they had, he wanted to clean up. And uh, it's like, you got anything I can clean up with? And then he's like, no, it'd be nice if we did. And it's like, all right, we got to go on with this because we had this pain point as athletes and it had graduated with us. And uh, we're going to solve it. That's amazing. It's, you know, it's interesting to me, too, because it's it's very simple right at the end mm -hmm. of the day, what you started with. And one of the one of the key moments was when you shifted from shower pill, which is the original name. Right. To hustle clean. Um, 
what what was the main i guess like cause of that shift and now the messaging on this site is far more i would say broad as a brand so you know mm -hmm. i can see the transition from product to brand in a really significant way i love all the give back stuff you're doing i love the stuff you're doing um to uh in in uh like flint and and puerto rico and all of mm -hmm. that stuff um and what's interesting is when i look at the values too you're talking about empowering greatness and the pursuit of greatness right where where does that all come from and what can you talk a little bit about the evolution as a brand owner from just going from product to really seeing this thing in a much larger scale yeah for sure man uh it was exciting for us because the product did its job it's extremely functional when you're sweating and you're on the go uh it was great product for that it was a great you know kind of solution for that consumer that was lives that active lifestyle but the limitations of it was it didn't lend well that's you know trying to be scalable and really going into new categories outside of the product and there was really no emotional tie um to the brand like um there was like nothing that really resonated we were really humanizing ourselves with shower pills it's extremely uh functional use only and uh we made the shift because we knew we had something bigger. Uh, we knew that we had some values that we wanted to uh, kind of really exude and uh, share with our customer that we felt like it was a community that we can actually build uh, with with Hustle Clean and moving to an actual brand. And we can be able to provide them an assortment of care outside of just our white product uh, to really care for their personal their personal care needs. And uh, it was it was a really cool moment for us. Um, because now we get to be who we are. Like we, we get to kind of really push our personalities for, to the forefront and like our ability to serve and impact. Like at the end of the day, I started this business and we started this business because like we came from humble beginnings and we were able to experience some really great uh, opportunities, being able to have successful careers and now start a business and have success. Like I don't, I don't want, the next Justin Forsett or whatever kid out there, I want them, I don't want any barriers for them, for their greatness. Like I want them to be able to be fully unlocked. Like somebody out there, they want to be, you know, they're, they're 30 years old and they want to go after a singing career, like go after it. Hopefully we can enable you to do that. If somebody wants to hike, you know, climb uh, Mount Kilimanjaro and, you know, they've, they've been told that is, you know, they can't do it. They shouldn't do it. And we want to be able to empower them to pursue that um, and chase holistic greatness, you know, not just physical greatness, because we believe as a company um, that greatness is not compartmentalized. Like you can't be a great entrepreneur and a trash dad. Like, you know, that's just not like our mindset. Like we believe that if it was a pie, greatness is the filling. Like, so if you even, if you cut off, no matter what slice you cut off, it's still going to be filling. There still should be greatness there. So if I'm a dad, I'm going to be an all pro dad. If I'm a football player, I'm going to be an all pro football player. If I'm a businessman, I'm going to be a Forbes, you know, 30 under 30, you know, list. I'm going to be great. And that's what we were trying to really push to our customer. And Hustle Clean allows us to do that uh, because it's resonating in a real authentic, uh, authentic way. So. I want to talk to you about your, uh, your Shark Tank experience because. Uh, yes. um, <laughs> you know that that that's a it's a challenging it's a challenging atmosphere when you go into that and you're dealing with they're they're hard on people um and they're sure. going to evaluate you honestly 
um, you didn't walk away with a deal, but you still reaped a reward from the experience. Um, talk to us about that. Just, you know, going in the feeling of actually being rejected, but then turning around the next day and then looking at your website and saying, wow, <laughs> it did help yeah. us though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. It is probably the greatest moment that ever happened for the company because, and I can say that now because it, it not only the rejection, you know, it definitely doesn't feel good and it still is, uh, it burns deep inside of me that we did get a deal because I'm a competitor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was literally the best thing that happened to us because it showed us where, you know, weaknesses were and they do a great job of editing. Um, there was definitely, it was bad, but it was not that bad, um, as they, <laughs> as it was portrayed on the show. I can tell you that. Um, yeah. but it was, um, uh, it was something where we could grow internally and externally. Gave us, gave us great brand awareness. We went on from there to Good Morning America, then into Target nationwide. Um, so that, that really, really propelled us and put us on the map. So even when I was showing up at these events after shows, like, Hey, you're the guy from Shark Tank. I was like, yeah, I, I mean, I played uh, some football as well. Uh, but that, <laughs> that one day, one night I was on, I was on Shark Tank. Um, uh, so it was, it was, it was really cool, man. It, it was a really great opportunity. We got a lot out of it and, uh, yeah, I don't regret it. That's fantastic. Um, I wanted to ask you know, kind of back to the the brand side of things, you know, I really appreciate the way that you look at life. And first of all, I echo that. I think just being good at one part of life doesn't mean you're doing it the right mm -hmm. way. You have to really make sure you have the balance and um, you, you, being good at other things makes you better at business. It just really does. Mm -hmm. But um, I wanted to ask you, this is something I've been noticing a lot recently. There are a lot of new product companies, but especially a lot of new brands. Do you think that uh, if one of our listeners is launching a company and they have a product, should they also be thinking about a brand? Or do you think that there's different paths for different people? Man, it depends on what your goal is. What, your, what, what, what do you want or what are you in it for? Mm -hmm. Like, Do you want an actual like company? Uh, that you can scale and grow um or do you just want like quick cash do you just want like something where you can just like flip really quick because there's different type of entrepreneurs it's like you know these serial entrepreneurs that are just in there like i mean i'm gonna just flip this i'm gonna sell it or you know if if you want something like like what we're thinking about like trying to become like this gatorade of of hygiene if you will or nike uh of of hygiene like um, it's going to take a lot of time after you got to be intentional. Um, you have to build a brand like it is something that you have to build a community around there. The consumer now is a lot different than it was, you know, even 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago. They're more conscious. Um, they're thinkers. They're reading labels. Uh, they care about what the mission the company stands for. So you have to build a brand. Um, you know what you stand for, what you represent, what you don't do, what you do all those things um, will allow you to kind of really build community and help grow your your company and your brand at the end of the day. So it's kind of what you're looking for. I know a lot of people overnight sensations and they're on like, you know, you know, sham wow and, you know, info commercials and just, you know, trying to do a quick buck. But um, if you're trying to do something meaningful, you got to build a brand. 
Yeah, I think something you said there that's that's critical that I that I preach is that you have to know yourself. You have to know what it is, like you said, know what it is you're looking for, and then what it, whether it's your brand or product or whatever, build around that and make sure that there's consistency because fairly quickly, if it's not authentic, people will see through it. And like sure. Martha said, there's so many new businesses coming out. It's the success rate is low. The only way that you're going to be successful is if if it if it attaches to who you are. And what you're giving to the world in a meaningful way. And and another thing like with how you started your business was, you know, athletes tend to have massive egos, right? Not necessarily intentionally all the time. It's a product of when you're, like you said, if you're going to be hit by a 300 yard, 300 pound man, you got to be kind of confident in yourself. And sometimes with that confidence with a lot of my friends who are athletes comes fear of asking other people for help, right? I got my own money. I got my, I'm an NFL player too. I don't need anyone to help me. But you, a lot of your early investors were other NFL players. How did you kind of overcome that and just say, you know what? I'm going to ask for help. I'm going to ask my peers because that's a big deal, not just for athletes, but generally for entrepreneurs to go and ask someone that within their network, it's easy to ask a stranger for money, but to ask one of your friends for money is challenging. Take us into that for you. And a lot of athletes just don't want to ask their friends for money because it's, it, it seems like it might be a reflection on what they don't have or they need something, you know? Okay. So here's the key right here is the secret sauce uh, that I will share. And this is my personal opinion and what I went through. Uh, you never ask for money. Yeah. Uh, build something that draws interest and then people will want to come yeah. um, and invest in not the product, but you. Yeah. Um, I was diligently working hard. People saw my teammates, saw me day in and day out, what I was doing with the brand, what I was doing out in the community. And I'm like, man, like, how can I be a part of that, man? How can I support you? And that's how I got investment from the guys. It wasn't me going and say, hey, bro, I got this great idea. I got this yeah. concept. I know you don't want you to invest. It was just like me doing what I was doing and uh, it caught on and you know, they oh, actually yeah, people, people want to jump on a moving train. Yep. Um, yeah. And, and it's also, and people sometimes get frustrated. Like why won't, why didn't they believe in me at the beginning? It's like, they have to see that you believe in yourself. Right. right. You yeah. know? Um, and, and I think that's something that a lot of people miss in their journey is that you have to prove yourself to yourself before you prove yourself to other people. Mm-hmm. That's Man. real. That's powerful. That's gonna be a that's gonna be a freaking clip from today's episode. Um, I want to be I want to be sensitive to time. Do yep. you have a, a hard stop right now? Are we good? Okay, good. bet. So we'll give you a couple more questions, and then um, we have we have a, a fun one to kind of wrap things up. Um, this has been, you know, what I think what's really interesting is the way that you're thinking about building a brand and really standing for something as an individual and. Uh, I also wanted to kind of dig in. I know that uh, you you hold your faith pretty closely, which mm-hmm. I think there's um, whether it's faith in God or faith in something else. I think the concept of faith is a really powerful thing to be able to achieve in this world because you have to have some level of trust in something, whether it's right. in the universe or a greater power or whatever. Um, can you talk a little bit about what I guess? what does your faith allow you to do that is different from 
if you didn't have it? Like what elements of trust are there that actually enable you to, to, you know, dream bigger and, sh and shoot for bigger goals? That's it, man. That is a core value for us. Uh, anybody that we're looking to hire, anybody we're looking uh, to partner with, um, our three pillars are faith, fight, and freedom. Mm -hmm. And uh, faith is an extreme uh, pillar because, uh, one, it is believing like in something greater than yourself. Like whatever you're going, whatever you're going after, you just have to have this extreme belief, insanity when it comes to belief. Like it'd be even start its business. You can't even start as an entrepreneur without some type of faith. You cannot, you cannot even take a step. Like you got to take that first step. It requires faith. And I'm looking for crazy, insane people that believe that anything is possible. Right. Even if this white, this company that started with, you know, wipes can, you know, will uh, continue to be this, you know, multi-million dollar uh, company and, you know, uh, really pioneer this category. So I want people that have that mindset um, because it, as it allows you freedom to dream and think and just be who you are. And that's what it allows me. It gives me peace. Um, it gives me strength. Um, I, every day I start my day off um, um, reading and meditation, um, prayer, because it's important to me. It's, it's kind of keeping me grounded because this life is hectic. Like it is crazy. It is the most insane thing I've ever done in my life. And I used to block JJ Watt and Julius Peppers one-on-one -on, -one, uh, <laughs> on Sundays. And it is just a grind. And uh, for me, it just kind of keeps me rooted. That's knowing I'm a faith in God that like there's a plan. And also it allows me to continue to push forward the mission of this company because even if we sell this company or this company is valued at, you know, a billion dollars uh, one day, at the end of the day, I can't take that with me. Um, and I've seen guys that, you know, um, you know, come into money, I shoot myself, come into money. And it is not like, like there's still more to life. Like mm -hmm. I know millionaires that are just poor spiritually, mentally, and just struggling on a day in and day out. So I always want to keep, you know, priority of like, man, do things of substance, have genuine impact in people's lives, even as a brand. And uh, I keep that forward. And if I do that, then everything else will come. Yeah. One of the things that I, that I see as I'm read your story and I, and I follow it is not just faith, but a sense of responsibility um, mm -hmm. that that's apparent in everything that you do. I mean, less than 1% of venture funded um, businesses are owned by um, African-Americans. Yep. And there's, there's a responsibility I think you feel to in what you do to be a representative and to not just prove people that, hey, you should be investing more in our community and people like me, but also helping to develop that mindset in more people who do look like you. Um, tell us where that came from and why that why that sense is so important to you. Man, it's all about impact. At the end of the day, man, like, you know, a lot of people are chasing success. I, I'm chasing significance, right? I want to mm -hmm. leave a mark that is here well beyond my years here on earth. Like I want to do things of substance, of significance, and that's what I'm that's what I'm chasing. So uh being able to be a part of the solution and uh, being able to help people in my community that look like me, the next wave of black and brown founders. Like if, if we have to go through the bumps and roads, 
the bumps in the road to kind of make it easier and smoother for the guys behind us, let's do that. That'll be the case. And we're going to try to open up as many doors and break down as many walls as possible. So um, there's more diversity within uh, the entrepreneur space. There's more diversity in VC. There's this more diversity of thought because like the locker room for me was the most diverse place that I could ever be in. Like, I mean, p- people didn't think like me. People didn't come from where I came from. Mm-hmm. You know, we had people that came from the suburbs, people that came from trailer parks, people that came from the projects, like all come together for one common goal to be great and achieve something great. And it's possible. And I don't know how you achieve success without having everyone at the table. How you not have yeah. people from different backgrounds and different stories. Like you just can't do it. Like, like, and we're just trying to be a part of that narrative that is, you know, uh, uplifting and increasing diversity and inclusion and uh, in every way. Yeah. I think it's really important that, you know, you've done, a, I think, a really good job on LinkedIn continuing to tell your story, share your updates. I think it's very important to for you to be the face of this brand and set that example for people, especially with your personality. Um, for, I guess, for our listeners, I, if they want to find a way to interact with you, what are the best ways for them to learn more about Hustle Clean and, and you personally? For sure. You got at Hustle Clean on all platforms. Uh, for myself personally, at J4Set on all platforms. Uh, yeah, that's what, that's where I'm at 24 seven. Hell yeah. Um, now going into some, some kind of wind down questions we like to ask for top fives. Um, first question is top five musical artists and it doesn't have to be rappers, but it can be all all genres. It doesn't have to be in order if you don't want to. Okay. Top five. Uh, I'm gonna go Lauren Hill. It's a big one. Uh, I'm going to go. Oh, I'm a big R&B head too. So, so am I. Oh man, I'm going don't to say go. R. Kelly. Don't say R. Kelly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say Robert. Uh, I'm I'm going to I'm going to go MJ. Okay. Uh, yep. I'm gonna go Michael Jackson. Uh, I'm gonna go Jamie Fox. Okay. Um, Super talented I'm, guy. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to go Outcast. Yep. Um and I'm going to go Jasmine Sullivan. That's a great okay. list, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great list. Second second question is your top five athletes. I think you gave Ooh. one away earlier in the interview, but who are the top five that influenced you? Influenced me? Okay. Uh Barry Sanders, Michael Jordan, Reggie White, uh, Magic Johnson, and I would say Emmett. How much of how much of because it seems like your 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 mix with Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, these are guys that are also entrepreneurs. Yeah. How much of that kind of influenced you in in, in picking this picking your list? For aspect? sure. For sure, man. So that definitely influenced it. Like guys that kind of paved the way to kind of like do more and be more uh, was in outside of the sport. Like you can accomplish greatness outside of, you know, running up and down a court or a football field. And they did it at a high level, man. Uh, they led the way. So that's definitely influential. And, you know, got the athleticism in there with and, and uh, also just mean of character uh, that, yeah. uh, that was very impactful to me. Man, that's awesome. 
Um, and then the last thing we'd like to ask for your top books. You can do top Ooh. five. Usually I have trouble remembering all the titles. Okay. Uh, but yeah, your most, I guess the books that impacted you the most. Okay. Crazy Love, uh, Delivering Happiness, okay, uh, Shoe Dog. Love that one. That's a good um, one. The Advantage. Um, and the Bible. Love that. What's Crazy right. Love? Crazy Love is a book on faith uh, from a guy named uh, Francis Chan. He was a pastor down in Simi Valley. I think that's what it's called down in L.A. And uh, he gave all of his money away and moved to China to serve. And uh, he, he got a million dollars. He prayed one day. He was like, God, like, I don't see enough believers out there giving back. Like all these millionaires that are coming to the church. Like I want to like I want you to raise up a group of millionaires was his prayer or you know, well-to-do people to serve and get back. And that would be their mindset. And it's like, if you don't do that, just give me the money and I'll give it back. And uh, he made a million dollars, well over a million dollars off the book. And he gave it all away and he moved and started serving. Wow. wow. That is yeah. amazing. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I hadn't heard of that one before, but I want to check it out. Yeah. Check it out. Yeah. Well, Justin, man, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us. You know, we're very grateful to have you. Uh, the whole goal of these interviews is to show people the character traits and the mindset that really, you know, not only are unique in the pro athlete world, but are also unique amongst really successful business people and to help everybody listening get a sense and really a look into the minds of um, highly successful individuals. So we appreciate you taking the time and uh, thanks for joining us. No, I appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me, man. It was a blessing. Definitely. Don't stop making those funny, uh, funny clips either, man. I love that one that you did about, about coming back to the NFL. Hey, man, I got more coming. Stay tuned. <laughs> I'll yeah, definitely you, be tuned in. TikTok is fantastic, dude. Oh man, it was it's unbelievable. If you're Brandon, you're not on TikTok, man. Shame on you. Like, <laughs> definitely, on. we 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 just got on recently. Do you want to plug it? We're doing a little TikTok challenge. V and I are trying to compete to uh, see who gets the most followers before the interview. <laughs> he came up with the competition, so I know he's got all kinds of cheat codes yeah, already. Yeah, he's got it already. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. All right, man. Uh, Thank you so much. All right, man. All right, Take care. You're listening to the Pilot Boys Podcast. Undo Media is proud to be the production partner for the Pilot Boys. Storytelling is what they do. From video production, podcasting, and consulting, Undo Media's focus is on telling your story. Find out why four Emmys and hundreds of clients will back up why you should contact Undo Media for your next project. Look them up at undomedia.com. Time again for some news and notes, part that it seems like people are enjoying our kind of open format with this. So let's just get into it. Let's talk about What's going on? You had some things that um, that you brought up yesterday Dude. In, our, in our normal conversation that I think uh, we should talk about today. Yeah. So what what you have to know as a listener of this is that V and I talk a lot. And it's just these these podcast episodes, I really would consider extensions of those phone calls in <laughs> terms of just a more organized way to communicate what we've yeah. been thinking about for a week. But Man, I've been feeling, I was just saying, I, I've been feeling some weight this week with the inauguration, you know, um, we're advising our employees to stay at home, not to not to go anywhere, not to travel on inauguration day. 
kind of a weird feeling to have so many people have a fear into you know bringing a new president into the office yeah and what's crazy about this is it's a universal fear right it's not it's not a party fear it's not a party fear people are really holding their breath and i think obviously we should be able to understand that because something that's never happened in the history of our country literally happened with very little resistance last week right yeah the Capitol was raided. Nancy Pelosi's office was raided. Mitch McConnell's office was raided, right? These things really happened. And now you're saying the center of the entire world is going to be on the inauguration in DC a little bit over a week later, week and a half, yeah. two weeks later. So what has changed? What yeah. have they done now to make it more secure that really is secure because i think when certain things happen i remember when you were probably too young to remember this but (laughs) in 95 the oklahoma city bombing happened i'm sure you're familiar with with the story at least and the reality that happened in around the same time the unabomber was happening right the guy who was sending all the the bombs in the mail and stuff right 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 and people really felt a sense of fear of like, I'm not really safe in these places that I felt safe in and I really should feel safe in. Even the, um, the anthrax scare after, yep. after the World Trade Center stuff. Yep. Uh, World Trade Center moment. Yeah. World Trade Center itself. Yeah. Another moment in time where I, I remember feeling this way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, the fear is legitimate, you know, yeah. because we are sold this idea that you know even look at our spending our government spending is spent mostly on defense right so we're, we believe we're isolated by water we don't have shared borders with any any real threat we feel very safe in america but you know there was a time i think maybe when i was like i think it was around the oklahoma not oklahoma city but the world trade center when i started to realize i was like every time i leave my home Every time I get in an elevator, I was like, if somebody has some nefarious thinking and wants to harm people, how protected are we really? Because how do you protect this much land, this many people, this many buildings from constant threats? Right. You know? Well, and and really, I mean, are we even that protected, right? Like what you what you have to acknowledge at some point is that you know, you can't block everything out. So you're going to have to deal with some stuff. But it's like once the illusion of safety starts to break for people, it's it's a scary moment. I mean, I think, you know, I want to also just say the while we're going through all of this, I've also seen a lot of, I would say, negative sentiment toward America. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of posting on social media just yeah. very negative about the country saying you know it's not a great place to live and all of that and i think to that kind of core energy i really disagree with that because mm-hmm. at the end of the day you know people like i think it's popular now to rag on america or to hate yeah. on the founding fathers right it's popular to have a view saying that the constitution was created by people 
who don't live the way we do now, right? And cool. But at the end of the day, if you look at the rest of the world, you know, from a freedom standpoint, we're definitively the most most free country. You know, there's a lot of things we could do better in terms of education, in terms of healthcare, in terms of a whole lot of things. But I think it's interesting to see how when people's sense of security starts to fade away, they can turn on, you know, the entity that provided them that sense of security from the beginning. Yeah. You know what actually makes me feel the fear though is is what's happening in terms of people, right? I'm seeing the degradation of people's individual identities into groupthink. You know, we talked about it a mm. little bit last week, which is very dangerous because one of the things that I realized just growing up, you knew just let's talk about your high school class, right? There were a group of kids that you knew had some issues, right? Right. And it's not judging them or anything, but you knew that they had some emotional issues, whatever is going on in their homes or whatever was making them very angry, quiet, reserved. What the internet has done and what social media has done is as opposed to those people getting help for whatever they're going through, it's being, they're being triggered to be angry, mm -hmm. you know, to get into that anger. We've seen this. This isn't anything that's new. This is like what we're seeing is the slow burn to where we're at. School shootings are not new right? in America. It's, there are more school shootings here than anywhere else. But that freedom in itself and the unchecked freedom that we're seeing, you see a lot of characters, and this is what happens in cults. This is what happens all the time is they prey on the mindset of these people who are already predisposed to kind of feeling a certain type of way. And now those people are being emboldened and it's become a very dangerous situation that we all have to face because how do you stop it? We believe in freedom of speech. You know, we have a president now who's built a platform and became president and won by catering to the worst aspects of our society and kind of creating that division. So you're seeing the reward also happen from it. So my, my question to you is, yes, I do believe there are a lot of places that are way worse, right? But I do think America is a very young country and I feel like we're going through something very unique right now that is going to determine what the future of our country is going to be that we can't take for granted, despite what what you're saying yeah, that yeah. it's not as bad as some people are making it out to be. We're in real danger right now. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I've never felt too much. I, I'm with you on the group thing, but I've never felt that much of that is is due to the government. I think it's a byproduct of the government being the government, but I think a lot of it is due to echo chambers caused by big tech. Yeah. And I was talking to a friend uh, and he said something really wise. He said his biggest fear that, you know, the thing that caused him the most fear in our society today was seeing two individual people, Dorsey and Zuckerberg, decide to muzzle the president. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Just for two people to be able to make that decision. 
that you can't hear from your president anymore is a crazy, scary thing. Yeah. Yeah. And you know this, like in, in you are in this world and deeper into it than I am. I, I, I study it because it's interesting to me, but the power of technology and the power of these firms, what happens when there's new technology? The people who create the technology are going to understand it way better than the people who have to police that technology. Right. You know, and so we've created this landscape and power is corrupting and power is addicting. You know, we've seen very early on what the character, Mark Zuckerberg is a brilliant man, but we've also been able to get glimpses into how much he cares and cares about power, you know, and some of the things that he's done to maintain his power. Um, some of the relationships he's destroyed along the way. There's a whole movie built on this, yeah. right? Um, you're right. You know, we've talked about it before is Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg. I find it very interesting what they did, right? It's almost like what they do, use somebody until you don't need them anymore. Right. right? Well, same thing Mitch McConnell did this whole time. Yep. And that's the dangerous part of politics that I think in partisan politics and and one of the things, despite you know, I you know I have some disagreements with Joe Biden, and I'm I've got some concerns. But one thing that I can say about him, and, and you said this offline as well, is that he kind of understands whether it's just political or not. He's not thinking. You don't get the sense when you listen to Joe Biden that he's somebody that's completely selfish in how right. he approaches power. Right. Right. Um. He's able to talk to other people. He wants agreement. He wants nonpartisan politics, which I hope leads to some change because I think what's happened, like you said, is now it's with both of these parties. You said you don't blame government, but I do blame both of these parties for like drawing lines in the sand and saying, if you represent our party, you have to hold these views. And if you represent this party, you have to hold these views. Yeah. And it's forcing common Americans into boxes that maybe they wouldn't have been comfortable with, but because they're party and there's this, like you said, echo chamber of these repeated sounds and noises and statements that people are now changing and becoming really, really divided. And I do blame our political, the combination of big tech kind of creating the echo chamber and then politicians eventually understanding Donald Trump being the foremost of them saying, also understanding the same power that Jack Dorsey yeah. and Mark Zuckerberg. Using it differently. And using it differently. And I, I also just want to differentiate politics and government because I think it's important to differentiate the two. I know a lot of people that don't like politics and then hold views that capitalism or democracy doesn't work. Yeah. And that's not true. You can't judge the rules of the game by the players that choose to play the game, yeah. right? You have to look at those two as separate things. So yeah. when I think about government, I think purely about the rules that govern our society and the way in which we do representation. And as a person, I genuinely have very, very few concerns about yeah. how government works in our country. Yeah. I have a whole lot of concerns, to your point, about the morals of politicians, the way in which they rise, and the incentive structure around them that's created yeah. that culture. Yep, yep. 
And I think the question, you know, with what you just said is, what does the future hold? What do you think? Do you think that we're just stuck in this position now? Because fear seems to have taken taken hold of everyone. Well, it's, well, I, a, it's a degree of fear, right? You and I yeah. still feel some fear. Like you said, you felt a spiritual weight. Um, where do we go, like moving forward? Do you th- to kind of start addressing the power of, for example, specific things that we could do to address the unchecked power of big tech? Well, my we- my personal view, dude. Because I mean, I le- I'll leave it up to Congress to set yeah. up antitrust laws. But as an individual, if you're not trying to be a congressperson or a politician or a representative, then it's you know pretty ineffective to be concerned about them. I agree with you. You have no real control about it. But now, with how many people are distracted by politics, is a great time to be opportunistic from a business sense. Because capitalism is a it's it's a structure in which when when you create value for the world, for other people, and values, you know, I'm using that very broadly. When you create value for others, you get compensated. Mm-hmm. And there are so many people not paying attention right now that any idea you have to start a business, any way you want to improve the world, there's a lot of ways to monetize social good these days. Yes. And you should be, if you're into it, building businesses or working for a company that's making the world a better place and actually taking some agency on your life where you know every single day the work you're doing is making the world better if you want to see a better world. you know, And that can be business, that can be politics, it's whatever your personality would dictate. But this is a great opportunity to be extremely career-focused, extre- extremely you know, personal development-focused, and just leverage the opportunity to become a much better version of yourself. Yep. You know, I have a, a, a statement I've kind of tried to use my whole life, which is control the controllable. Right. Like you can control certain things. You can't control what our government does. You can't control what our politicians do. It's at such a high level, you know, and some of these billionaires try, obviously, and they do. But most of us are never going to reach the level of power of some of these people. So what can you control is what's what's going on in your life. And some people think and overcomplicate things. One of the, the most amazing things that brought a smile to my face is right when this thing started. Right. And people were having this mask, no mask debate. The number of small entrepreneurs who just saw the opportunity to make PPE masks, whether it's with custom designs, and the number of people who just saw the opportunity and now are making thousands of dollars a month. Yeah. Just, I know. And as opposed to getting caught up in the noise saying, hey, this is an opportunity. Let I me know jump a on six year old and a four year old making thousands of dollars selling masks on Etsy. Wow. I mean, the it, it is here for the taking, right? But yep. for everybody, how do you get out of your own way enough to realize that, hey, I don't need to focus on these things. They're just going to drain my energy. I can actually be doing something. Yep. yep. Making an impact, driving forward. Yep. And I think, you know, we've talked about it before, is you have to, at a certain point, like we talked about those kids in high school who you kind of knew there was something missing. 
you know, and I've, I'm not saying I've gone through this as an adult. I've gone through it several times, but how do you own your own shit and actually understand your own problems and why they exist? That's a very difficult thing yeah. for most of us to do, especially as you said, in capitalism, which is a culture of distraction, which is, okay, I'm depressed. Let me go eat. Okay. I'm depressed. Let me go get a drink. Okay. I don't feel good today. Let me drop an edible versus right. actually it's that symptom versus cause orientation we've been taught we've kind right. of stepped on is we're not can you blame citizens for not doing what's best for them if they're constantly reinforced to do things that make the situation worse right and then on top of that i think there's this you know pervading idea of like the, there's you know, an amazing mental health movement going on right now, which I'm a big fan of. But there's a lot of people that identify as depressed, which I'm not a big fan of. Yeah. Because, you know, what happened to being sad? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you can't be sad anymore in today's society. You have to be either depressed or you have to be like crushing it. Those are the yeah. two categories you can be in. Extreme. But, Everything's polarized. Yeah. You can't just be like sad one day and then happy the next day because people are just like, how? Oh, sad? Are you are you are you depressed? Like, are you taking medicine? No, I'm not. I'm not taking medicine. What do I need medicine for? For being sad because somebody stormed the Capitol? That's a sad thing to see. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not a I'm not a robot. Like, of course I'm gonna feel that way. But I also know I can't control it. So I'm gonna accept the emotion. Then I'm gonna continue to move forward with my life. And it's important to allow yourself to feel things, to live life, to be a human being. But at the same time know that those actions and feelings are not permanent states. You know, you're not permanently depressed because you're sad. You're not permanently, you know, in a bad situation if you're a Trump supporter because Biden got voted or, you know, other way around. If you were a Democrat before and you didn't like Trump, I think most Republicans didn't like Trump. It's not going to make your life worse. Yeah. It's just somebody you dislike and you can be sad or disappointed or whatever emotion you want to feel, but then what? Yep. Yep. And I think, you know, the other side of this coin is like you said, people want to, to say they're depressed, but it's also people don't, they want to take the shortcuts to this. Even if you are depressed and you're going through something that's impacting your productivity, you feel sad a lot. You're, you, you know that it's impacting your being and how you interact with other people the first thing that they'll go to is a, a psychiatrist and that psychiatrist will immediately just listen to them and diagnose them with depression and put them on some medication. Dude, I feel but, like it's easier to get depression medicine than it is to get a painkiller. It is. It's, it's, it's with the first thing that a lot of psychiatrists do. And the reality is, is the most impactful thing that you can do is the actual counseling to yeah. diagnose What's actually going on with a person instead of just saying, hey, we're going to fix fix the levels in your head. Those levels are happening because of the what they're dealing with. You know what I mean? Right. You know, and I do not want to knock. There are situations that I think medication, I, know, I have friends who use medication and it has helped them tremendously. But it's overprescribed, overdone. Not every person needs Prozac to feel yeah. okay. Sometimes it's as simple as what happened in your childhood that's making you feel this way. 
How do yeah. you fix those problems? How do you deal with those issues versus here's this pill, magic pill that's going to make us feel better? Dude, and I remember growing up, man, I'm a I grew up in the 90s, you know. There wasn't depression back then. There was like, okay, you're sad. All right, chill the fuck out. Go sit yeah. down, read a book, get off your phone, you know what I mean? In today's era, there weren't yeah. phones back then. But yeah. you know like stop doing what you're doing every day if it's resulting in sadness and depression and try changing it up and doing something different. Try not using your cellular device. For yeah. me, I I deleted Twitter because I was I felt like it was negatively affecting me. I felt like it was making me sad. Yep. Yep. And then also the things that you use, like, you know, obviously I do not, I, I am a, a, a proponent of legal marijuana, but I feel like a lot of people now also are naturally saying, oh, I'm depressed. Let me go smoke some weed. Yeah, that will give you a small little momentary joy. But the moment that you come down off of that high, if you're sad or depressed or there's something going on, it doesn't fix the issue. Yeah. You know, yeah. unless you you know, unless you're if you want to be high 24/7, you be my guest, but that's a pretty expensive habit too. Yeah, it really is. And dude, I mean, my thing with weed has always been it it's, you know, it can be a band-aid, you know, like drinking is, but yeah. That's not an effective way to utilize it. It's a pretty powerful tool. It helps you see things from very different perspectives. Yes. So if you were to sit down and use weed to then sit down and journal and work through what you're going through and write about it and think about it and figure out you know, how to get yourself in a happier place, you'll probably have a permanent positive shift in your life as a result yep. of that one time smoking as opposed to utilizing it as a band-aid. Yep. Yep. The same with alcohol. And the thing about alcohol is it's a depressant. It yeah. is a known depressant. Yet so many of our conditions when we're upset about something or unhappy with something, there's this trigger, psychological trigger to go get a beer, go get a drink. Oh, I need a drink. And it's like, those things are like ingrained psychologically, culturally, and I think that those things cause a lot of the depression and consistent depression. I feel like as a society, we're getting sadness, mental health. I don't want to just say depression, but how we are approaching mental health is completely wrong. Yeah. And it might be part of the issue with capitalism, right? There's a lot of money in prescribing Prozac. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And selling is the, and oftentimes selling the movements to normalize things are led by, you know, extreme folks. And so, yeah. It's good to normalize speaking about your mental health. It's bad to normalize taking drugs for yeah. the solution to your mental health. You know, that should yep. be used if a doctor deems it appropriate. But even physicians are getting very lackadaisical with how they're prescribing. So, yep. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a sad thing to observe. But, you know, I think kind of from a tactical standpoint, if you're an individual person kind of going through all of this, I think there's a couple easy ways to think about, you know, your thoughts and your habits day to day. You either have positive feedback loops or you have negative feedback loops. Yep. So you have, I guarantee you, two or maybe three total decisions in any day that dramatically impact how the day goes. Yep. And it could be what time do you go to bed dramatically impacts the next day. It could be, do you eat breakfast or not? 
And that could that has a huge impact if you do have mental health issues with you know getting you the right nutrients in the morning, right? Are you eating the right food? Food is very much like medicine. So if you're following a diet that's trending, if you're doing some stuff like, you know, I'm not a big believer in going too far off script from what yeah. our bodies are meant to do. You know, this the the biohacking movement is interesting but not practical in my eyes because. It doesn't make sense to try to hack something that's already designed really, really significantly well. Yeah, you know, and I agree. Why would you put a different type of fuel in your car? You know what I mean. Not, not that either of us use fuel anymore. Flex, <laughs> but real talk though, it's like there's these few habits, you know. And and for me, it's very simple. I if I do some level of exercise every day, and if I meditate every day, and if I sleep on time. I have incredible, productive, wonderful days. I'm happy, I'm balanced, and I enjoy my life. And I have the mental space to take walks and look at the trees and, you know, listen to the birds in the morning. You know what I mean? I don't look at my phone first thing. This morning I woke up, I spent 20 minutes listening to the birds chirp, just laying there. And it's yeah. like those are the moments of appreciation we've lost in today's society. And yeah, and, I, and we constantly are looking for our distraction. It's not just instant gratification, but look, I can't say that every morning that I wake up and I, and I don't grab my phone as the first thing, right? There yeah. are days I cry. I'm trying to train my mind because I want the first thing I, I, I look at my phone as I took a nap. I went to sleep. I woke up. I actually look at my phone as the first thing to do to see what's going on, what I need to do, whether it's my email, whether it's social media channels, it's something that you actually have to train yourself away from, you know? Right. And, and it's the same thing as like these small habits. When people want to fix something that's wrong, to your point, what we're told to do is go to extreme lengths, right? Like, right. as opposed to, oh, I'm not working out at all today, this, this month. Okay, let, I'm going to start working out seven days a week. Maybe you should start with one day a week, yeah. you know? Yeah. You know, it's as, as simple as that. Okay, my diet's bad. I'm going to cut out everything that I eat that's bad. You're not going to be able to do that. Right. And so that's the thing is this discipline of taking small steps. And I don't know how much of this is the impact of social media and the digital age, but it just seems like people do not have the patience to say, okay, if I drink water as the first thing I do in the morning, it will have an impact a year from now. It's not going to have an impact tomorrow. Yeah. And yeah. then when things don't have that impact the next day, people quit. Yeah. And I think there's this, this sense of um, almost FOMO, right, that's created for healthy habits or for good habits or for any sort of like self-improvement stuff because you see people talking about it all the time on social yeah. media. And everyone's like, if you're not, you know, doing this every day, you're missing out. If you're not posting three times a day, you'll never, you know, be successful. If you're not working and it's like, that's just so wrong. Yeah. Like nobody out there can tell you how to be successful. Yeah. It's literally zero people. Because nobody under, understands who you are and what drives you, you know, you, I know you have some bad habits. I have some bad habits that I think as I've gotten older, there are certain things that I've just accepted are part of who I am instead yeah. of like judging myself 
for my flaws so much is just understanding that they are flaws and working around those flaws to continue to be an efficient and successful person, right? Yeah. Like there's certain things about me that are just who I am, right? And, yeah. and when you accept those instead of always being so hard on yourself, which is something that has also taken me time and I'm still going through that process, something changes, right? Yeah. And you do become the best version of yourself because you're focused on how to improve certain things versus focusing on things that you probably are never going to be able to change yeah. about yourself. Yeah. And you know, I think the best advice I've ever heard is from a very wise book. And it says that the outside world mirrors your inside world. Mm -hmm. And it's like such a reminder that if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling nervous, if you're feeling scared, if you're feeling FOMO, whatever those things are, you know, they're likely inside of you yep. and you're projecting them around you. And because of the way that your behavior changes as a result of, you know, the beliefs that you have inside or the way you see yourself or the world, you know, that drives your actions and that creates your outcomes. So yep. to look at the outcomes and then diagnose different actions doesn't get to the root of the problem because the root of the problem is beliefs. It's not yep. actions. Yep. So for any person, it's like, if you can sit down and figure out what your limiting beliefs are, you're going to go so far. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, to kind of bring that conversation full circle with what's happening with our society and, and our citizens is that we're spending a lot of time focused on the belief systems that other people are telling us to prescribe to. That's why we're all so angry, right? Like I look at, for example, I look at race in America through a very realistic standpoint. There is a group, an individual race who has established themselves at the top of the power chain in America. That power chain to give up that power, even those with great intentions, it's very hard for them to give up that power, right? So what do you have to do as a minority in this country? You have to establish your, you may never reach the top of their pyramid per se, but what it does allow you to do is create your own pyramid or your own bubble of success, right? Right, right. That you, can, you can't control whether or not the whole country is racist or not, but you can control that your friends, the people that around you hold the same views and don't hold views that you don't agree with. You can control that, right? And I think a lot of people are getting caught up in the macro world and looking at these macro problems, these impossible to solve problems that we have versus saying, hey, let me fix what I can fix within my environment and encourage other people to fix what they can fix as opposed to just being angry and upset with everything that's wrong that's going on. Yeah, 100%. And ultimately, I mean, the most you can ever help somebody is by giving them the tools or the a different perspective to help them start to work on themselves. Yeah. But beyond that, there's very little meaningful stuff you can really do for anybody else. No, no. You know, they say all change starts in the mirror. 
Yeah. And the people who understand that and figure that out are typically the people who live healthier and happier lives, you know, and you know this, like I have friends who are almost 300 pounds who are happier than some of my people who, who are in shape and work out all the time. And the world looks at them as the perception of greatness and might look at the 300 pound person as something being wrong with them. And, you know, I'm not saying that you should ever be 300 pounds per se, but it does start within. They have a self-confidence within themselves that the outside world is then forced to accept. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and, And I think that that's, you know, I'm not sure exactly what I'm saying there. Maybe you can, you can point out, but it does start in t- inside in terms of how you feel about yourself, right? 100%, 100%. And, you know, I, w- I want to segue it a little bit to what we were talking about with MLK Day. So, you know, that just passed this this past Monday. Um, it's always a nice moment to reflect and just think about how far we've come as a country, but still how far we have yet to go. Yep. And, um, you know, I've, I've been noticing a lot of controversy that I think people are uh, i would say like getting trapped in yeah in terms of you know this is a positive holiday it's a time yeah. to remember somebody who is an incredibly inspiring influential figure who changed the life of you know millions and millions and millions of americans changed the trajectory of our entire nation right and to see to see people jumping into partisan politics and to start you know, there's this argument going on about um, people co-opting his legacy. Essentially, people are saying white people are co-opting his legacy. Um, and uh, essentially speaking like a false version of it to, to you know, the African-American community. But what does it matter at the end of the day what somebody else thinks about MLK? Because yeah. of the- like really truly it's yesterday was a time to reflect and remember that we've come a long way and there's more time to go and the way to live in life the way to make impact the way to really be somebody like that is to put your heart out there and to stand stand up for something you believe in you know and yeah mlk didn't tear down people he brought us together yeah I mean, and the thing about it is, is the reality is when you have a purpose and you've discovered your purpose, and this is something that I said yesterday about MLK, is the reason that he's such a powerful figure is he took the time to understand himself, what he thought about the world, and the role that he wanted to play in it before he ever got out there and started talking and and preaching. That's why it was so impactful is his views were genuine and authentic. They weren't influenced by the outside world. They were influenced by his own vision and belief system. And the other thing that that really disturbs me about, like you said, the controversy around him that started is he would be so disappointed in it because here's a guy who took a stand and fought for progress. And gave his life for it. And gave his life for it. Didn't even make it to 40 years old. And now on his day, the seeds of division that he was trying to fix are being magnified, right? And 
the thing about him is he's, he always understood that you had to make people who think differently understand your viewpoint, not just be mad at them for their viewpoint. And that's what made him such a unique figure is that although he did have, he, was, he wasn't a punk, you know, and he stood up for what he wanted, he always understood that in, if we're going to make it in America, I have to live with the white person that's next door to me. And I would rather have them at least be civil to me and understand my perspective, you know, than, than go in this direction that is divisive. And, and, and oh, I said this and therefore, you know, I, you can't, you can't, you can't take my words. His words are his words. You can't take my words and manipulate them. If pe- people are going to do with people's words what they're going to do, as you said, right? what you can control is, are you going to stick to the spirit of what this man embodied? Or are you going to adjust it to, again, be selfish and put your own selfish imprint on it? Right. And, and essentially spit on the man's legacy is what I how I see it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's... That's exactly right. And I, it's always these moments that, you know, you've got to remind yourself just because you see somebody post on social media or have a lot of followers or share a message, it doesn't, doesn't mean they're right. Yeah. I feel like that's a hard thing because I, I catch myself a lot of the time too. Is I see somebody post something, it's from, you know, some random page or whatever. And, uh, I'm like, oh man, I disagree strongly with this. And I can feel myself get fired up. And then I'm just like, well, you know, what what is actually going on is that some random person posted something that they believe that I disagree with, and I'm fired up about that. But I don't know who this person is, so why should I care? Yep. Yep. You know? Yep. And then it's like you cannot use someone else's legacy and what they gave their life for. To manipulate it, you know, manipulate it in a, in in a way that's outside of the spirit, you know, yeah. of the way I look at it is the more people who are posting his messages, the better, you right. know, right, a hundred percent. And it's, it's all good. about anytime you're preaching nonviolence and coming together, it's a good message for me. Yep, yep. You know, and and you know, and that also goes to you know, we we also celebrated. Um, Martin Luther King Day, and we also celebrated somebody who was a little bit different than MLK, which is Muhammad Ali, who, you know, I've, I've told you several times is, in terms of idols, my number one, mm-hmm. because he's somebody who very uniquely figured out how to both be confident in oneself, but also have the humility to understand the world around them, fight for what you think is right, and then also be willing to pay whatever price comes with you being your authentic self. Uh-huh. That is why he is my role model. It's not, I love him as a boxer. I love I'm wearing a boxing sweatshirt right now. I love the sport of boxing, but to celebrate that man's life too. And so many people idolize him and I see the same issue. You know what I mean? Like, although Muhammad Ali could tell a white person to their face, all the things that were wrong about them and still smile and shake their hand, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of it. 
and almost have that position of, I forgive you, you know not what, what you do, right? Because to always be angry at the oppressor, as, as he, all, he always even said it, he would say, the oppressor, you are oppressing me. It's not part of his reason is like, these Vietnamese people aren't oppressing me. I'm being oppressed in my own country. But the way in which he conducted himself and the way in which he conveyed his message, I would say is way more effective than him picking up a weapon and rioting or attacking someone because he forced people to see things and had a way with words that forced people to understand his perspective and sympathize with his perspective, whether you liked him or not. Dude, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's there's something to be said for being able to speak what you believe clearly, but without contempt, yeah. you know? Just from an, a place of honesty, but to support that with love for the other person. Because I think it's important to be able to say to somebody, you know, whether it's business, whether it's you know sports, whether it's life, family, whatever, you should be able to say the things that that bother you that yeah. they're doing that you know are affecting you. But you should be able to say it with love, not with hate. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think that that's that is the takeaway. You know, because I think you one of the things that I kind of wanted to say is that if you look at the times that these people lived in, Muhammad Ali and MLK. Maybe we're regressing, but I don't think anyone would want to have to deal with what these guys dealt with in those times today. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? So although progress has been slow and we are dealing with some challenges to that progress right now, let's not take for granted the progress that's been made and the work that these people put in to put us in a position to even fight and speak our mind to continue to improve our country. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And progress, you know, while it has been slow, has been steady. You know, we are in a better place than we were. And despite the friction that we're seeing, you know, these kind of explosions of, of societal, you know, drama, for lack of a better word, are more reactions to things. They're not, yeah. you know, a true representation of where we're at. So it's also important to remember that, just the fact that you can have conversations about these things, about race today, I mean, that's already a world of difference. Yeah. With a willing participant on the yep. other side. Yep. Yep. It's uh, the debate itself and the conversation. When we stop having conversations and we just kind of dig our feet into the ground, which is what I see on social media, is that people are so pissed off at each other that no real conversation is happening. No yeah. dialogue is happening. No progress is happening. Just a whole bunch of people pissed off all the time. Yeah. That's not an effective way for us to move forward. It doesn't mean that the things that are wrong aren't wrong. But what are we going to do? You know, like the structure is the structure. So we've got to either fix these problems and, and understand that it's a slow process and do what we can or we can just be mad that everything isn't perfect and this yeah. world has never been perfect. You know, this is what we're dealing with today. There are real issues between all the power structures, the rich and the poor, black versus white, majority versus minority. Those issues exist, but they've existed throughout the course of human history. They yeah. have. 
And so progress is made by the people who decide, the Harriet Tubmans of the world, the Frederick Douglasses of the world, who decide, you know what, this isn't okay, but I'm going to come up with an effective way to change this. I'm not just going to stand on my Twitter pedestal and complain about everything that's going on. What action can I take to fix the problem? You know? Yeah. Um, and I don't want to discount the anger that people feel and the emotional things that people are going through, but just understand that being angry is never going to lead to progress. And if you accept that and you still want to be angry, then just accept it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you can't you can't both be angry at all the time and under and ask why are why isn't thing why aren't things changing? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Because if if you know, you allow yourself to be angry, then you should be accepting of others being angry at you. Yeah. And then change doesn't happen. I hear a lot of the time, you know, well, you know, it's it's within my rights. I can deal with this however I want to. Yeah, you can. But don't you want a better world? Don't you want to create peace? Don't you want to be an agent of change? Because you yeah. can be. It just requires getting over your ego, humbling up and going out there and asking some questions and learning more about others. Yeah. We do need to figure out why, as a, in a capitalist society like ours, at a certain point we have to accept that this anger, this divisiveness, although it can be profitable, although it can be great politically, what are the long-term effects of this thing? You know, yeah. so many people are upset and unhappy and creating an unsafe environment. Like I live close to the Capitol building here in in Columbus and there are people protesting outside. And I'm fearful that those protests are going to turn into fights, that that eventually is going to have collateral damage. And is my car safe? Is my apartment safe? Am I safe? Are those the questions that we want people in our society to be having when we have so much wealth, we have so much success, we're a beacon of light, can be a beacon of light in the world. We need to start understanding why we continue to have a system in which we push forward these problems and want to propagate them yep. versus fixing them. Yep. Absolutely. Man. Well, on that note, I think we're getting to the end of this news and notes segment. Hope everybody is safe on inauguration day, which uh, will have passed by the time this podcast episode comes out. Yep. Um, you know, we're, we're wishing well for everybody. It's de I definitely feel some sort of weight here. I don't know why, but I definitely feel it. But I think we're on the right track, man. I think that we're moving in a positive direction. I think that having the conversations and, you know, encouraging each other to grow and to listen more and, and you know, to, to actually go out and put the actions in to build some good things in the world, you know, we'll get there. Yep. I mean, they say this all the time. Sometimes you need to destroy to rebuild. And I think that's what we're going through is an iteration in this country where a lot of problems have not been addressed and have just been kind of swept under the rug for the profit, specifically within the technology space. And now we're seeing the collateral damage that's come with it in a real way. And that's the only way that I think human beings address situations is when shit goes bad, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and I am proud of some of the progress despite all the chaos. Some of the progress that's been made with with Black Lives Matter, um some of the progress that's been made this year 
from people. I've seen people who held certain views who are adjusting their views and seeing things that they didn't see before. So that is a glimmer of hope after a challenging year. And hopefully, you know, Joe Biden, regardless of what you think of him politically, he's not a guy that's advocating division in our country. So for all these people to be mad that he's the president and not give him a chance is foolish in a lot of ways, because I think from a person, regardless of his political positions, from a personality standpoint, you know, this is the guy that's going to listen to everyone, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's so simple after tomorrow, he's our commander in chief. And so, you know, respect where respect is due. Yep. 100%. 100%. And on that note, that ends our news and notes uh, segment for this week. Hope you guys are continuing to enjoy, we enjoy it. We got a couple really positive comments that, that inspired us last week. Hope you continue to do that. Um, follow us on all of our social media channels and, and give us feedback. We want you to be a part of our conversation. And with that, always remember, be you, you is fly. Pilot Boys out. Pilot Boys, we get on the